Hey, this is Montage Through Cinema, a podcast focused on bringing an honest, genuine opinion on film, film schools, and filmmaking. Today, we're going to be talking about slow cinema. I'm here with Taylor Hentrick. He's part of the Cult Cinema Club. He is the VP. He's a filmmaker, a junior, and he's already been on the podcast twice. This is his third time, and it's also the third podcast I've made. I'm glad to be back. Hey. Oh. I'm also here with... Nabil Awad. Yes, that's right. <laughs> he is the uh, president of the most attended Columbia College Club, the Art House Film Club, um, and he's also a filmmaker and a, another junior at Columbia. Hello. Uh, another Art House Film member, but actually the VP, Zach Crossway. He's also a filmmaker and a junior here at Columbia. What up, dog? All right, so we have some exciting guests today. So I'm going to uh, very shortly read the definition of uh, <laughs> slow cinema based on Wikipedia. So slow cinema is a genre of art cinema filmmaking that emphasizes long takes and is often minimalist, observational, and with little or no narrative. It is sometimes called contemplative cinema. Um, examples include Ben Rivers, Two Years at Sea, Michelangelo Frammettino's La Quattro Volte, and Sean Wilson's film 51 Paintings. Uh, I'm going to let Zach Crossway uh, read the rest of the... You want me to read? You can just read the... Uh, here's some other filmmakers that uh, are known to do slow cinema. Okay. What Wikipedia says is that... Andre Tarkovsky, Ingmar Bergman, Michelangelo Antonioni, Alexander Sakharov... Bellatar, Chantal Ackerman, and Theo Angelopoulos are part of this movement. Okay. I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say that Bergman is, but... So I'm going to throw this out there. What is slow cinema? Does that Wikipedia definition discredit it or confine it into a definition that's incorrect? No, I maybe not the def, the people that they gave, maybe not specifically, like maybe not Tarkovsky specific, specifically or Bergman, but it's generally... Generally, for the most part, similar. I don't know what you guys say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I definitely take Bergman off the list, as Zach and Taylor said. But so, so what is it though? What is it? Let's define it even more. Oh boy, is it experimental <laughs> in nature, or is it is it mostly narrative? Is it documentary? T uh, yeah, it's closer to documentary and narrative, but I wouldn't say it's experimental. It's probably as far from experimental as you could get. Why? Because if you like hold a shot very long, it's that's pretty much linked with wisdom, I would say. So the slow cinema guys are further into cinema history, and they also make longer and longer films. So to actually hold a shot is not like, yeah, it's not like an experiment, or it's not like, I mean, it's radical within cinema history, but it's not as if they don't know what they're doing like they they've gotten to that point through the maturity of learning like the craft and learning about art history and how that could manifest what about um other mature directors like ridley scott is is the films that he is making not filled with wisdom or deep intelligence i mean compared to lav diaz no but what what makes different... what makes the films of lav diaz filled with more wisdom as you said so I guess it's a perspective on history. I mean, if you mentioned Theo Angelopoulos, or I guess I read that, um, and he was on the Wikipedia page, and mm -hmm. he's, he made a film called The Traveling Players, and he made a bunch of films in that 
like that are pretty similar in which characters are walking through large spaces and you have long shots in which they'll be walking so long that they run into people from like other eras. So within a single like pan, you'll pan from like on looking on the sea and you'll see like, a, you know, I think it was um, Eternity in a Day, that film's on YouTube, uh, in which there's like an old man and a, and a kid and they're, and they're walking onto the sea and then you hear this like voiceover describing the story involving like an ancient warrior, like a Greek of some sort, and then the camera's just panning as the voiceover starts until you get to like a Roman soldier and he's just like staring at them. And then I think it continues to pan until mm. he wanders away into like these remnants of like something like that. I'm, I'm butchering it. I don't know the exact details of the story, but it's, it is, and that's what Diaz is about too. It is like a, a contemplative, you said contemplative cinema. It is a, um, Okay, so I agree with the wisdom point, um, but Zach was talking about like historical wisdom. I kind of talk about wisdom, I think, in the sense that you asked more, like in terms of uh, literal wisdom, like being like wise. Well, if you know, it seems like what you want is to have people sort of that aren't really familiar with this, is what you told me. What what slow cinema is or slow cinema films? Yeah. Or so I think there's a good line mm -hmm. that you should tell them, or that I guess I'll tell them right now, which is Bellatar said. Um, Slow, uh, like, um, films have to, uh, or like, my films don't follow the logic of the story, they follow the logic of life. And I think w that brings us to an interesting point, uh, talking about wisdom, because, for instance, in Bellatar's films, and I, I you know, he's, uh, he made Saint Tango and Werkmeister Harmonies and a lot of films that I would consider slow cinema. Mm -hmm. And in those films, there's huge and long shots of the, just the characters walking, right? And they're walking in Hungary, and they're walking in these places where there's a lot of wind, and, and, and you know, I think in Tango you have like a 40-minute shot of just someone like walking from one place to the next, and usually the conditions are rough, and it's, and it's something that is, is crazy, right? To have like a 40-minute shot yeah. of someone walking. But I think there's something very wise about that too, because but what's the problem when someone... Let me just finish my... Yeah, um, I think there's something very wise about that, too, because there is something that is lost when you are doing narrative, or a lot of these narrative films they're talking about, like Ridley yeah. Scott and stuff, that, that they, they, they are, I think, sometimes looking for moments that are grandiose, or they have grandiose moments. Yeah. But what I guess Bellatar, I think, is saying is walking from one place to the next can be grandiose. And walking from your home to someone else's home when it's raining and, and, the, and the wind is tough is something that is in, incredibly grandiose. And I kind of was joking about this with Zach a, a few weeks ago. I think we were coming back from the Gene Siskel Film mm -hmm. Center from a film, I think it was The Passion of uh, Joan of Arc, mm -hmm. uh, which they just did a restoration of. Um, we just walk and like the wind was like blowing and it was really cold. And I think I told Zach, you know what? I always think about Bellatar when I walk down the street now because that's like it, you know. And, th and there's something that's so true and wise about that. So just to give you, I guess, my thing about wisdom. Yeah, and and that's a good point that it kind of it comes from experience of making <clears throat> films and understanding films and maybe diving into the history of films that people kind of tend to go to slow cinema. I mean, the people that know that know about slow cinema that even indulge in it when they're you know making films are people who are cinephiles who are very deep in you know that they know their library their library they become a library of film and my my only thing is that that kind of goes in now slow cinema kind of goes into the philosophy of filmmaking because kind of in a way you're cutting off a, a huge margin of your audience because um people aren't willing to watch movies that is it's is someone walking they'll think it's bullshit and 
And is it the problem of the filmmaker that like people aren't willing to like watch these movies? Do they not? Is it naturally should they not care? Like, I think length is an issue for mm -hmm. a lot of the public. It's 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 hard for the general public to watch a film that's more than four hours long at times. Yeah. That's, for most people, it would be, mm -hmm. and especially when the the content isn't an explosion or something or or some long conversation between the two that's really like huge and eventful if someone's watering flowers or something or you're walking in the wind for a while or like crowds of people moving forward yeah. i think there's there's something there in movement alone but it it is challenging for a general public to kind of get a hold of that i wouldn't even i couldn't imagine if it would be possible for people that don't really Indulge in that to want to go for it. I recommend it, but it's yeah. it, it'd be hard for people. What about what about movies like Uncle Boomy, who can recall his past mm. lives, which I feel like is. It's, I mean, it's an hour and forty minutes, and then mm -hmm. Horse Money is an hour and a half, right? An hour, hour and forty, an hour and forty also, and those are, I mean, those are, <clears throat> by our standards, regular amount of time for a film to have. Those aren't the four-hour movies we're talking about. Why aren't people watching even those movies though? Well, I think it's just that people are less willing to go to the theater in the end, and we can have a conversation about how if everything's shot on digital, and that includes television, and that includes movies, there's no reason for someone to go to see a movie in the theater. Like, it used to be like your stupid little TV for yeah. television, and then you go and you see 35 millimeter. And film is still a higher quality medium than even the best digital cameras. So mm -hmm. the license to see a Tarkovsky film on digital is, there's not, no reason, but like, Something like Andre Rublev on 35, that's like an actual event to like go to. So I would say as far as, um, and James Benning talks about this, he says that he's very interested in, in the contract of cinema in that if you have an audience in a theater, they're gonna like stay. They're not just gonna get up and leave. Even mm -hmm. if you make a film like 20 Cigarettes or um, I think it's 10 Skies is the other one that, um, or one of the other films he's made. Yeah. And he's, he made a lot of films that are very directly, he, he's called them, he likes keeping his art practice uh, simple because he's from mathematics. That's like his background. So he's interested in very simple mathematical things that um, I'm going to butcher it, but I'll probably remember it later. Um, that something very, very simple can be very, very complicated and complex. And he knows that if you're in a theater, especially if you're seeing a film on film, but even if you're just in a theater with an audience, you're holding each other to it. So there's no way for, for instance, with Bellatar, like a 35 millimeter film or whatever, um, People aren't going to just leave, even if it's like a brutal experience. They feel like bound by it. If you're in your living room, you're just going to pause it and stop it. And, that, and that's something that's really crazy. Because I watched Saint Tango in a theater on 35, and I thought everybody's going to walk out. Everybody's, and everyone, and everyone stayed. Most people stayed until the end. It's an eight-hour film, even in or seven hours fifteen minutes, even in a cinephilic setting it's yeah. tough to do like a seven hour 15 minute film in a theater and it was uh you know over it, it was like in a summer like a summer saturday it was warm out uh it was the semi-finals of the uh euros actually germany was playing italy i believe it was a big thing and people stayed and i didn't think so i thought okay let me let me see everybody walk out and he didn't and i so i do think that this contract that Zach's talking about is something that i i see as you know disappearing and michael haneke had like a great line about this. He said, I, th I think cinemas are going to become like operas, right? There's going to be like one, one in a city and everyone's going to come out for Andre Rublev, Andre Rublev on 35, but that's it. It's going to be like an opera, right? It's going to be like a thing. But I think that's very concerning because yeah. 
more and more when I watch films with people at home, mm-hmm. 99, like 35% of the movie, they're like this. You know, 35%. Looking at their phones. They're looking at their phones. Yeah. And, it, and, you know, I will look at my phone much more. I will look at my phone much more as well if I'm home. You know, I'll just look at my phone more often. I, w- I won't be the entire film on my phone, but I will look at my phone more often. And I think that this culture of just kind of not or being detached from the film, you're home and you're on your mm-hmm. phone, is so troubling. And mm-hmm. I really, I see people, really, you don't... Pedro Costa, who's a, another filmmaker that you kind of talked about, you talked about Porsche Money, and he has this line, he, he says, it's really, it's as hard to watch a film that it is to, you know, make a film. He said this in the early 2000s, you know, and today it's like, I don't think, I rarely see people actually watching a film, you know, because mm-hmm. you talk about, you know, you talk about people, you're like, you know, at home and people are watching, and then you talk about them, and, and it's like, you can watch it, but you, you don't really. If you're on your phone, you, you, can't, you can't really watch it, you know, mm-hmm. and this, so, I, the cinema becoming an opera, I think, is a ultimately a bad thing and I think it is related to what you were talking about yeah. people not seeing Uncle Boomy so we have just been joined by Nicholas Swan thank you for being here if you want to say hi happy to be here happy to be here yeah yeah um, and I'm just gonna answer it so that's really interesting actually what you're saying because I mean these movies clearly they're when they come out even they're not in common theaters they're Maybe at the music box, possibly. They're in art house theaters, and they're More very like popular. And they're very popular in those theaters. Yeah, those theaters sell out. Yeah, so they it's do. kind of the opera. But thing, they also right? only have like two showings. So you have to, you have to go. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I think, yeah. like, Horse it? Money was in Chicago for like a week, like right. four days. Four days. Jesus Christ. And and the thing is, I think those movies. The the problem is when you watch those movies in. Um, the theater, you can really think you're in a calming setting, but then when you're, I mean, any movie, when you're in your house, you're, you're thinking less. You have to, it's kind of like figuring out a way to shut the outside world out. You got to put your phone over there. You have to, like for me personally, I, I have like an arm, I used to live in an apartment where I had an armchair. I had to put the armchair in front of the TV or I'd do other stuff. And I mean, that's a, maybe a little bit going away from slow cinema, but, but um, I think, I, I think that the, Slow cinema, though, is it only for theaters, though? By what you're saying, is it only meant to be seen in theaters? You can't watch it? Because you can watch certain movies in your couch with a bunch of friends, too, but is slow cinema, like, even if you're... Well, we do it with our friends. (laughs) Oh, in in a a living... Yeah, we do do that. Well, Nick, Zach, and I watched uh, Six Hours and watched them once before. That was a fucking great time. It certainly depends on the environment and who's there with you, but I don't think it's impossible, but certainly uh, difficult. Uh, uh, so I think it is a matter of, you know, accessibility with the individual. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's impossible to do slow cinema outside of a theater. Mm-hmm. And for a lot of people, it's very difficult because a lot of places don't have theaters like they do in Chicago. You know, you'd be hard pressed to find theaters like this in the suburbs. You know, if you want to see a Lab Diaz film, if you want to see a Bellatar film in uh, Albuquerque, yeah, I don't think you have a choice but to watch it in mm-hmm. the home. And so. There are some concessions that have to be made, uh, but I don't think it has to be done within a theater, just because I think cinema can exist anywhere, and that, you know, to limit where you can consume it. I think, you know, a TV, not ideal. A telephone, definitely not preferred. <laughs> telephone, movies yeah. On the telephones. <laughs> um, but, you know, if someone has a projector, like I have a projector at home, and hmm. I think if you turn off the lights, you know, you try and shut out outside sources, and you throw it up on the wall, I think it can be just as good as, you know, doing it in a theater. Yeah. 
you can make a lot out of something really small. I would recommend seeing these films in a theater, but you don't have to, like Nick said. You can, if you make a real, if you make an event out of it, you don't even have to make an event out of it. If you just, if you put the whole setting together in a precise way, having projector, the whole room dark, having it all set perfectly for the film, you can have a great time just as much as the theater. Yeah. Well, the problem is, is um, if you have those theaters, if mm. you have theaters showing slow cinema films, then you'll have people watch slow cinema films, regardless of who they are. Like, I, I, I go to doc films at the, University of, at the University of Chicago all the time, and I often hear people go, oh, like, do you know anything about this? And it's like, no, you know, I just got out of class, and kind of wanted to watch something and I just walked in and it's like, you know, a great, you know, like an yeah. unbelievable movie that I've been looking for years and it's like, <laughs> so if you have those theaters, show, I think that's the question, right, is how do you have people watch those films yeah. opposed to, because us, of course, we'll watch yeah. that in our place, you know, we look for those, we meet up, it's fucking fun, Nick Cook's quesadillas, it's a blast, but... <laughs> well, you're not going to stumble upon slow cinema if you're not yeah. familiar with it. You don't, you're not going to have the idea to bring it into the home unless you're already familiar with it. And, you know, for people who are interested in it, they can make it work in the home, but discovering it and trying to, you know, get an introduction to it in your home can be difficult just by finding, like, a foothold within it. So, and you think the reason why it's something that like you have to just like look for something to discover is because it's kind of like, like why why is this not something that's more common? If you guys find if you guys so, find so much wisdom and if you find like that you kind of get inspired by these films, why why are they you know more common? Why why am I uh, as a, as me I'm more inspired by like Tom, Paul Thomas Anderson and his films? Is it because of like they're not marketable? Is it? Yeah, it's you know a six hour film is not marketable, and I think an issue yeah. especially with today is that people. Their attention spans are getting shorter and shorter, and mm -hmm. I think, you know, it's when these films are getting longer and longer, people are pushing the boundaries of cinema more and more, like Lab Diaz, mm -hmm. where you know he starts off making two-hour-long films, mm -hmm. then he just jumps into you know five, six, seven, eight, ten-hour films. It's an amazing progression for the people who are involved to see this growing as an artist, but it's becoming more and more inaccessible uh, mm -hmm. if you're trying to get into contemporary slow cinema. Yeah, and Lev Diaz has even spoken about that. I watched an interview with him when he was asked, like, how do we even see your movies? And he said, oh, just torrents, like, it's going <laughs> Just and, steal it. Yeah, and he, and he was asked about that, and he said, oh, well, if you make films that are this long, you give up your ability to sell them. And he's like, it's not a product, it's like, a, it's a work of art. Art shouldn't have boundaries. And yeah. he's really, and he talks about how it's ridiculous that you say, oh, there's a long film and then there's the short film. It's film. It's cinema. And he says it like that, like, it's cinema. It's just, he it goes, it's fucking cinema, man. And, like, that's his line that he always says. Uh, that's a great interview. Yeah, there's, on well, he says, that, watch it. he says that in a lot of interviews. It's fucking cinema, man. But, uh, yeah, he, he's very aware that he's not, he doesn't want to be part of this, this culture. He doesn't want to, um, and that's another idea that I feel like is lost with the difference between film and now digital is uh, there's a guy named Anjez Zuowski, I believe that's how you pronounce his first name. He's not necessarily slow cinema, but he's a brutal filmmaker to watch their films. He makes very frantic, crazy, I would say very fast-paced films, so he's not very much anti-cinema, or he's not very much slow cinema. Uh, he said that how he learned how to make films was that it was as if he couldn't make another film again, like you have one chance. And he said nowadays people are making films to build a career and like mm. not make the wrong step. But like for him and for a lot of the slow cinema guys, it's all or nothing. Mm -hmm. Let me throw this idea out to you guys. Now with slow cinema, is it kind of like um, 
certain types of paintings where you have to kind of have the context of the time period, you have the, have the context of the art that came before it. You know that before like, the Renaissance was these types of paintings, mm. before, after Renaissance is this, these type of paintings, and because of the you know things that came before it, is it like is slow cinema a response to the cinema that came before it? Um, mm. Is it like because movies are moving so fast paced? Because I mean. The, the joke is about the, what is it, a Taken 2 had like four shots of for him, him jumping the, over actually, a fence. not even four, like it was like 12 of him jumping over a fence. Like, is it, it's not, I mean, not, it, it, it can't, it can't be, a, <laughs> 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 we're just like, Chantal Ackerman, Liam yeah. Neeson jumps yeah. over a fence. It's him jumping over the fence, uh, something about the body. Is, I mean, you can't, it can't be a response to Taken 2, but like, is it a response to some of the cinema? Sometimes mm. is it, is that what it is? Yeah, I don't think you can, Categorically say that for all slow cinema, but mm -hmm. I think a lot of them can be very direct response to something. You know, getting back to Lab Diaz, who you know, I'm not surprised at all. He's coming up a lot in this discussion. <laughs> a lot yeah. of his films are deeply tied with, you know, existing as a person in the Philippines and where he exists currently. You know, his, in the history of the place, and they're very much tied with politics and you know, uh, when martial law was in place. And so for each individual artist, I think there's certainly is context, and I think, you know, if you're going to look at their whole body of work, mm -hmm. looking past their films is more important. When they yeah. were coming into the world, what they, <clears throat> excuse me, what their childhood was like, you know, what they experienced, and I think a lot of it is very tied yeah. with uh, the personal life of the director. So I don't think you can say it for a whole as every director. But, but well, yeah, <clears throat> this is what I'll say. Mm -hmm. I think if, I, well, the, the, the context thing I think is interesting because I, I don't think that you, if if I I don't need a PhD in Filipino history to yeah. understand Lev Diaz. I don't need a PhD in the Portuguese Revolution to understand Pedro Costa. horse money yeah. or yeah. And I think that's the difference is if you have more context yeah. and that brings more in the film, mm -hmm. that's great. You know, if you know the director, that's great. If you yeah. are deeply familiar with, with the history, that's great. But regardless of slow cinema or not slow cinema, I know nothing about the Philippines. And I still go and I watch these films that are dealing with this historical issue and I still get a lot out of it. So I think as long as, this is less about slow cinema, more about cinema in general, as long as there's, you know, it's there that you can get at it with no context and you can just like, you know, get out your own conclusions and, 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 and be in the film without mm -hmm. knowing anything mm -hmm. and you still get like a rich uh, work of art, then that's, that's just being a good film, you know. And I don't think the slow cinema films do require more context than any other film, you know, it's just, it, is it a good film that I can sort of enjoy without, yeah. I think um, one thing that I, so I watched Horse Money um, this week, and one thing I was confused about was I, it got, um, I thought it was a narrative, and then I watched it, and, it, yeah. and in, in one of the, in one of the IMDB pages, or one of the, one of the pages it I saw it on, yeah. it said documentary. Don't believe yeah. IMDB. Don't believe in it. So I was, I was confused by what it was, was it a narrative, was it a drama, and then I realized that it was a it was a very very interesting very very uh, you know f forward thinking kind of way to make a film where it was kind of a documentary but it was it was a guy is a Ventura talking about his um, his experiences to people that also were part of his life um, in a, in a weird fever dream like way so it kind of is a doc there's not a really way, a good way to well, define it and that's that's the that's one of the great things that we can get out of Pedro Costa is that what is even like a documentary, you know, what is even a fiction film? And that's what he kind of, you know, with all his films, you can kind of get a sense of. It's like, okay, those are real people talking about their real experiences in real locations, but 
he's still staging it, and yeah. So what is it real? Because they are actually those people. Is and he it... said before, like he's giving them something stylized to work through. Yeah. Like he's giving them the setting to work through. Yeah. Their memories or their traumas or so something. So another like a a a good thing, a good example for that is in Horse Money, Ventura shakes. Right. He like his hand shakes because he's ill, and Pedro tells him. Can you shake some more? You know, <laughs> just shake a little bit more, and that's it, right? You know, so that's like there's no documentary or there's like cinema, you know, like yeah. that's, that's like the yeah. It's a great mindset that come into film with it. Uh, I think part of the issue with trying to categorize horse money is that it's not really. I mean, it's, I think it's difficult to define as a narrative film. Um, I think it's. Not, it's, it's a very unconventional film, and I think that uh, Horse Money and a lot of slow cinema films toe the line uh, toward being an experimental work. And so I think it's difficult to try and categorize it through a narrative, through a traditional lens, when it is towing the line into, you know, new cinema, this sort of, uh, this other cinema that, mm -hmm. you know, people still kind of uh, struggle to grapple with today. Because... Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, a lot of great slow cinema artists uh, can also be categorized as experimental artists. You know, uh, James Benning, Scott Farley, they are well-known slow cinema people, but they're also very much uh, experimental avant-garde people. And so I think that's part of, you know, going back to accessibility as yeah. well. It's difficult to watch them because they're not you know, quote-unquote normal films. Mm -hmm. They are trying to do something new with cinema. It's, uh, you're like, you're trying to figure out what's going on. Like, why is this character saying these things? And, and at least in Horse Money, you're trying to figure out why the, the soldier is, mm -hmm. is um, a, a tool for all these different voices yeah. to come it's, from. It's yeah. divorced from reality, and it's divorced from the, you know, the understanding most audiences have of what a narrative film is. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, I don't think... Coast is too concerned about making, you know, yeah. the traditional narrative film. He's uh, concerned with expressing the plight of the of the people <laughs> of Ventura and the people around him. So what what was interesting to me, cards on the table. I just really hated at some points, horse money. <laughs> I hated it, mm. and in the other times, I was like, man, this is so enthralling. I'm so like, I'm, I'm I feel so like, mm. you know, like the screen's pulling me in. And it was just such a weird thing where I was like, I hate it, I love it, I hate it. And, and the thing is, I don't think I would have even hated it at all if I knew the context going in. Because I, I like to go into movies contextless. I like to not watch commercials, I like to, or trailers, I mean, and I like to watch the movie completely. But the, the problem is, I don't like films that need the context. I don't like art paintings that need context. And then the thing is, like, that's kind of a... Uh, arrogant, maybe. But um, with Horse Money, I kind of wish I knew that it was a documentary. Because at one point I thought it was a narrative, and I was like, why is, why is this the way he's going about it? Why, why are these things, you know? But now understanding it, maybe hearing him talk very loosely about it, of course, because he hides a lot of it. Well, yeah, it's hard to kind of label, like we said, these films, because mm -hmm. Zach, Zach said earlier even that a lot of these films aren't experimental either at times. Some of these films are like it's just it's just things it's it's movie it's cinema but with horse money you can you can there we go it's life you can argue that though you can argue a lot of the things in that are experimental works and it's it, it is stylized. yes it's stylized exactly it's 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 challenging to kind of grasp that but you don't need to put them together because like we said it's movies are movies cinema is cinema yeah. you don't you don't need to put a label on every single like piece of the movie and with with horse money, I understand the the context list 
portion of it that maybe you hated, you didn't like, you mm. love, or you despise. But it's, I think a lot of these are also, the multiple viewings as well are very helpful. For yeah. the, it's not it's not like you didn't get it this time. You go go for it, but just you you just get more out of it. You yourself get more out of it. It's yeah. not like your brain just expanding. Like I understand the world, but it's like it's you you get more out of the film itself. You yeah. gain and, more knowledge from and it. And that's a like, great line that Costa says, like the door that's closed. And, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I yeah I love that line. Um, but to go to go to. To talk about this point and, and to talk about the closed door, um, the great films, they, they're, they're, they're rare. It's because they're the ones that you know, give you more. I, this is another coastal line, we keep quoting him, but uh, he talked about uh, Naruza's. Um, a woman ascends uh, the stairs. Uh, yeah, the woman ascends the stairs. Oh, and uh, he said it's, it's one of those rare films that reveals new mysteries in, 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 in each viewing. And it's rare for film to do that. And horse money is that. Horse money really. Every time you watch it, you're like, Jesus Christ! Like, there's so much, there's so much here. So I don't. You don't need context to understand horse money. You don't need context of the Portuguese Revolution to understand horse money. What what it is? It's like an incredibly dense and 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 you know film with all these closed doors okay. and all these secrets that you really have to give yourself to for you know years and yeah. Um, to try to get you know closer to it, but the door is there's a lot of closed doors. So that's a very interesting way to see a movie that like isn't like a, a regular way people see movies. Like yeah. I don't, for me at least, I mean I can watch a movie, even like a really really uh, to me a good movie like Manchester by the Sea, and I can be like, oh man, I got maybe as much a, a pretty good amount out of it. So, so you, it's kind of interesting. Instead of like watching a movie once and being like, okay, I got pretty much out of it, you have to watch it again and again. And maybe well, they that, said that about Paul Thomas Anderson too, that you watch yeah. his films more and more, and they're better and better. What's, so, what's well, he's a great. Creeps he's line? A really what's the Vicky Creeps line that she says in that interview? Is uh, but make sure you watch it many times, otherwise you won't get it. She says yeah, that she said movie. like. Because people are like, oh, I've seen it like three or four times. And she goes, oh, if you see it ten times, then you'll uh, understand. I, I think <laughs> it kind of, I, I think three times, I think I kind of got it. I don't know if you... Three guys, times? It that's, gets better. That's pretty good. It gets that's better solid. the more you see it. It does? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, that, but that's not how people think about movies either. It's not even an idea, a notion in their brain. And that's mm -hmm. kind of maybe, maybe in a sad in a way that, um, for me, I don't enjoy watching movies again because I don't feel like I gain any new information. Mm -hmm. It feels like I'm sitting through a lecture that I've already been given mm -hmm. maybe a, a few months mm -hmm. ago. Maybe not true about slow cinema. Maybe not true about certain types of films. Too. I say not true about, you know, good cinema. <laughs> well, yeah. sure. what's... Yeah interesting about slow cinema is that especially with the incredibly long ones with the you know the five six seven upwards of ten yeah you can't and possibly some, see everything and some monstrous and, ones yeah, that are you yeah. know upwards of 12 hours long is that there are moments when you're locked in and there are others where you'll fade and you'll need to take a minute you know either you go to the bathroom or you just conk out you stop paying attention because it's it's for i'd say everybody it's impossible to keep your attention continuous on a subject for 12 hours. So you don't even pause it if you go to the bathroom. You, no, you, you, and if you're sitting in the theater especially, it's yes. sort of, there's, a, there's an ephemerality to every viewing experience of the film because you cannot possibly be locked in to the film for the whole time. So every time you watch it and rewatch it, mm -hmm. you're going to have different moments of fading out of it. And you're going to have a unique experience every time because this time you see this part, whereas last time you were kind of zoned out during that. Yeah. And so I think with slow cinema, especially the colossally long films, yeah. is where you can get a especially unique viewing experience every time. Which is weird to ask someone to watch a 10-hour movie twice, you know? I mean... 
that's, well, that's kind of like a life. We're, we're talking about like a lifestyle. lifestyle. You know? yeah. Yeah. Life changing. It's experience. a lifestyle. Yeah. No yeah. lifestyle. Sure. Lifestyle. Absolutely. Lifestyle. Life changing and lifetime. That's like what we're talking about. Mm. Like we don't. It's very rare for me to schedule. It's another thing we're talking about. Like scheduling films to like scheduling yeah. rewatching films. It happens, right? Yeah. So that it just happens over a, a lifetime, you know. Like in three years, you're gonna, you know, you're in New Orleans and they're showing like horse money, and you go, okay, I'm gonna go watch that. You know, it's like no, but it's that, it's that, it's that type of thing. You know, it's not like you're gonna watch like Berlin Alexander plus Christ in one month. It's that, you know, it's like you, in your lifetime, these things in these circles, these things will happen, and you'll get like a. And a, you want to give it time too, because yeah, you want to come back to when you're. Ten years later, after maybe you had yeah. a kid or had a bad relationship, yeah. I mean, just just today, I like look at movies. Yeah. You know, I like I, I like look at movies now, and then I'm like, oh my god, I saw this when I was yeah. fucking fifteen. Yeah, I didn't understand I, anything. Now that's it's like crazy. So later, you know? Yeah, we're in a great age, you know. With like we like I was saying earlier, with digital, like you can't rewatch films until recently to the extent that you can now. Yeah, absolutely. and that's a very important thing. And when you talk about um, some of these people, like I said earlier, before I think we even started this, that it seems like Bellatar was maybe the first person that the slow s cinema term was put on. I don't know how old that term is, but I think Tar is... Think maybe Ackerman? And then, you know, it's Jean... relatively new. Yeah, and then Jean Dielman was a revelation because it's like a woman cooking and it's a really brutal film to watch her routine. But why that... Yeah, why that is, is, and you know, they hear about this when you hear about um, Bella Tarr and his films getting made, is when he says, you know, you have six minute, seven minute shots, like, per shot, right? And each of his films, the shot length goes longer and longer per every single shot. Um, mm -hmm. Until you get to the turn horse, it's like eight minutes. And I believe the furthest you can go on a 35mm camera is like 10 minutes, right? Or is that true? I think it depends, on, it depends on what camera. I think for like standard like 35mm cameras that they use to shoot like, you know, those movies that we, we, we talk about, I think it's like 10, 11 minutes. But I think there's some others, right? I think, think maybe you know about this. So like 30 minutes or something? Like 30, I think like 15, 16, 30 minutes. For cinema, for like, for like a film. cinema camera. Film camera. A film camera, 35 millimeter film camera, no. No, I, 35, I, no, but like Empire. Wasn't Empire like 20 minutes a shot? Empire, well that was 16 millimeter. I think, yeah, yeah I think the smaller the format, the large, the yeah. format of film you can use. Um, but for a regular 35 millimeter mag, I think you've got 11 minutes tops. Yeah, yeah so you're pushing it. If you're Bellatar, and that, everyone knew that, and he talks about how if you're go doing this very long take, everyone is incredibly concentrated. Yeah. The actors, the technicians, um, people with their big uh, wind machines or whatever, and like... The guys and with there's the a lot of paper. And this, yeah. is, this is important to talk about Bellator, is to talk about the movement also, like the concentration. Yeah, like the movement, you know, in terms of... Because it's not like Zach's talking about the everyone being concentrated it's not that behind just, the scenes and in front of the camera yeah. like it's all around uh, because it's not just like a static like Bellatar he said about he cuts within the frame so it's not like everybody's just standing around it's like the camera's like going and going and mm -hmm. there's all this crazy movement and it's like <clears throat> you either really funnel in your thoughts and, and the, it, does yeah. that make it every like shot even more like uh, it has more meaning intensity because I mean there's a great intensity. term that we word. love right. uh, intensity uh, there's a filmmaker named Jean-Marie Straub who influenced Pedro Costa very deeply, and he had a, he has a wife Danielle Hulet who yeah. passed away. But Jean-Marie Straub is still alive. And still making films. Yeah, and there's this term that he's I don't know did he coin this? Cause I he think said I believe Tom Anderson coined it, but I'm not a hundred percent sure. No, no, no. I think Straub said this in the '70s. I read an interview, and he said that uh, he wants to set the world on yeah. fire. That's what cinema is: is to set it on fire. And so the the cinema of Jean-Marie Straub and Danielle Hulet is to take a text and then interpret it through the camera and through cinema. So that's a really simple way to put it, and I'm not going to say that's like 
the dumbed down version of their cinema, but there is something within their films that's called Straubian Fire. And I think you, the Straubian Fire term, I think that was Thumb Okay, yeah, the yeah. term, but he, he's the one who said, set yeah. the world yeah, yeah, yeah. on fire. Uh, like set, yeah, and, and so what, what that means um, when you see a Jean-Marie Straub, Daniel Hewlett film, is that you have these, these very long takes, like four or five minutes of someone reading straight from like a document for like, you know, and like really stylized, like, I don't even know how to give an example of like what someone would say, but it would be like, you know, Moses and Aaron, you know, that's like an opera that they made, like a film opera. And, they're they're literally just singing for like three to four minutes about like oh you have given the people you have let the people bow down to false gods and all this stuff and then it'll cut and the cuts are so violent that because sometimes you get like a very very short shot yeah. and then you get a very long extended shot so you never know within a Straub film how long each shot is going to be but you always are like waiting for a shot to end and some are just so, some you just have like, let's say a payoff, but that's like not the best term, but some are more explosive than others. And like, I don't know, there's a film called Antigone that they made in which the guy comes running in to tell, to tell the king that the city is falling apart or something. And he's the messenger and he goes in and he's like, and now my mission is over. And he fucking falls right on his face, like on the ground, you know, it's like sand. He goes, my mission is over. And then just falls on his face. And it's, very physical and clearly the guy like fell and it was like absurd to have an actor do that but yeah like we're talking about with documentary or fiction film like that with the straws like it's that's like right there there's like an intensity and that's not like there's no camera movement necessarily with their films within the strawbian fire but a lot of slow cinema gets into that area you know of mm -hmm. the shot is held for so long that you're just you're kind of losing your mind but you're kind of there and you're just it's hard to describe, but yeah, it is setting the world on fire. It's like this. I was thinking of this film, which is introduction to Arnold Schoenberg's yeah. accompaniment to a cinematic scene, which is that. It's like, which is a great film. It's 17 minutes long. Long title. But yeah, it's like a, it starts with Straub speaking, and then I think like the isn't the isn't like the the, the film after the Straub speech, just like a, the guy reading. Isn't there's a like couple. The, there's a couple other shots. Is there a couple other he, shots? He reads in like a. In like a studio, he's yeah. reading. I think the the Schoenberg letter, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, about how anti-Semitism. Yeah, how anti-Semitism is creeping into Germany yeah. pre World War II, and like how there are all these other artists that are against the like the Jewish people, and how that's really like how can this possibly like? And so the film is essentially this. Um, it's this intense, concentrated reading of these texts that were written in very contemporary and very present times when. You didn't know what the future was going to be, and like for instance with Schoenberg, he was very he was very worried about it, and but he still didn't know. He was more just like okay. So with the intensity of Straubian fire, and we're, like we're talking about with history, and with the Straubs, they're taking documents that are very old and they're giving it the the contemporary context, and that's why you have people reading documents. It's not like they stage him even writing it, or they stage like something like that. They just have a person read the document on camera yeah because you can't this is also another thing that's very connected to these you know the Straubs and Costa in terms of reading documents is that you can't you can't really like recreate the past or you can't really like speak of the past or like a, there's a great essay in the Porsche Money uh, Blu-ray which written I think by Chris Fuji Fujiwara, who's a, a great film critic and he's uh, not film critic but anyway he, he, he's written some interesting stuff <laughs> and he writes something about Horse Money in that essay that says um, 
which is something that we also always talk about. Uh, like the past is unspeakable, right? Mm -hmm. So in Horse Money, you have this woman who her husband died. Yeah. Like how can you speak? How can you recreate that? How can you create or 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 write or speak of a lifetime? You can't. The only thing you have are these documents. It's unspeakable. It's he was born this day, he was he died that day, and uh, we mm -hmm. got married this day. Like that's the only thing that you really have about the past because you can't you can't really recreate it. You can't really make it. The, Right. It's just, it's, it's the document, yeah. right? So now with digital cinema, yeah. too, Pedro Costa, and how his films kind of originated, is he would go to this place called Fontanas, and it's a very, it was a very poor place with a lot of uh, immigrants, correct? And Yeah, from Cape Verde. And he would be there for long stretches of time, just like living there, and he brought like his digital camera, and then he just started shooting and shooting and shooting and shooting, and you know, when you don't have to pay for film, you can shoot much more with a digital camera. Well, there's something interesting about this. Okay. He shot with, uh, it was like a mini DV camera. Right. And yeah. he needed cassettes for okay. it. And, well, wait, I, I, I'm just saying this as an anecdote almost, because it's not like film, right? You can just yeah. like, get more cassettes. Yeah, it's not, that, it's but, not as expensive. Yeah, exactly. But I, there's like a, a story that I think is pretty funny, which is... Um, this is the year 2000? This is in 2000. 1999 or he, something? Like, I think he like ran out of money. Uh, because he was just living in this like neighborhood, he wasn't working. He wasn't. He was just like living in the neighborhood, right? So he like ran out of money because he just shot, you know, these people for years. And then he asked Vanda, who was one of the people he was filming, for money so he can buy like another cassette. And the film is called In Vanda's Room, and it's about a, a yeah. heroin addict named Vanda. And you like see her do heroin. So in she the gives film. him money for the cassette, which I think is that's that's for, unbelievable. Un unbelievable anecdote, right? You know? It's a yeah. fifty euro. It's not film, right? Yeah. How much is how much is like a brol? fucking 35 millimeters. So expensive. And then you had to do all this. No, you can just buy a cassette. Yeah, and know? that's the beauty of the digital age. It makes slow cinema, creating a slow cinema film, so much more feasible. Like, you know, back in the day, say, you know, if you want to create a six-hour film mm. back in the day, quote-unquote, yeah. yeah. it would be, you know, exorbitant amounts of money. It's not feasible. And especially not for people who, you know, want to create a drama that's, like, examining a space. Like, yeah. You'd have to be like Rivette or yeah. You'd have to yeah. have or, or what's his name Fassbender to get enough money to do a ten-hour yeah. work yeah. on film. And so like it, Oliveira. This age, it makes it a lot more accessible to make inaccessible work. Yeah, and there's a there's a great God. There's another great coastal line. Um, <laughs> that's um, I, I don't know. I think you told me about this line because okay. I don't I don't remember reading it, but I know that you told me about it. But it was like a maybe I do remember. Anyway, it's, it it doesn't matter. He said that with shooting with the digital camera in Vanda's room, he w one of he was trying to reinvent how people made films, which he did. Uh, and he, a line that he has is, "I was trying to give time back to cinema." Right. So that's what you're saying. It's yeah. time doesn't cost. I've never know. heard that. <clears throat> really? That sounds like something I've said, but maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm said. well. I'm pretty sure Costa said it, but anyway. I'm sure he said it. Either he's a Pedro Costa, one or the other. But. Um, Anyway, that's the line, right? It is he was giving time back to cinema. Mm -hmm. He was kind of recreating some of that mm -hmm. sort of mentality of cinema as like work, right? It's not just you, you have this like film that costs a lot of money, is you can just film, right? And it doesn't cost any money at all. So, in term, you know, going back to what Nick is saying, it's that, right? Is that uh, it's sort of a line that Lev Diaz has, like, uh, we were emancipated by the, by the digital camera, you know, that just allowed us to just yeah, do... Yeah, you can now have your tool, like, the painter has their paintbrush, and now the we have rocker our... The has the guitar. Yeah, yeah, now we have our camera, and, like, we have the tool for, yeah. for once. 
and God, bringing up Diaz, I mean, his his big film is still on 16 millimeter, I believe. Uh, Evolution of a Filipino Family. Yeah, that's a 16 millimeter film. That film, when you read about that, you still see though, like even as we're talking about that's, it being more accessible. Like, that's fucking 24 reels of film. Yeah, it's it's 10 hours, 25 minutes, and he took him like like 13 years to make it, and. It, it's the story about that. You really, you still realize that even though we're talking about it's more accessible and stuff, and that was before digital. So he was even like still needing to make a ten and a half hour film. When, when did that come out? That was like early two thousand five. So, so that was when the digital was kind of starting to become. Yeah, he had already. He was making other films alongside, and he kind of. <laughs> so that, that's a really long context of the fact that he had so much footage that his computer broke and like it like crashed. So he had to like recover. So that, that was my... He had to recover. Recover. Uh, so essentially, he, he shot so much, and, it was on, and he, what he said was he had, whole, he had a whole refrigerator that was just full of like, film that he yeah. had shot. And, like, yeah, and he, you know, he was shooting all kinds of stuff. Like, when he went back to the Philippines to work for some kind of company, but there's this whole thing about how he shot for four years in New Jersey from 1993 to 1987. And how long was the movie? The film is ten and a half hours long. <laughs> and... He didn't use any of the footage from 1993 to 1997 in the United States that he originally shot. He went back to the Philippines, and that was supposed to be the flashback for the narrative, but then he realized that's the narrative. So then he starts with, in the Philippines, and the film is set between uh, 1972 and 1987, or like 1970-1987, which is within which the Philippines were under martial law. So this film is this epic monster yeah. of a movie with like archival footage of people protesting in the streets and then you have like people you have like melodramas you cut to like people giving melodrama like acting out melodramas over radio because the people would just listen to the radio and this period was so uneven for the people that you're like you know you, you talk about boyhood and like the character goes from <laughs> he goes from this age to that age yeah. but the lead boy in the film starts at the age of like 10 and by the end of it he's 18 and that's actually him way older and like a lot of the actors he had actors die and he yeah. just kept shooting you know Linklater says oh if someone died that would have been our biggest thing and like we would probably care about more that more than the film but I mean of course Diaz cares about people but he still keeps going with the film yeah. and it took him like a decade and he had to be convinced after he lost all the footage to keep to, to continue to like to like mine out all the stuff out of this fucking computer that crashed and then organize it again and I heard all kinds of things about you can only upload like 30 minutes of sound at a time or just it's incredibly impossible the fact that he made that prior to digital and that's like I, I don't even know if he say he's slow cinema he just would say he's like an epic filmmaker or he's just trying to make a, a, film a film yeah he's trying to do yeah. what he needs to do but no one in their right mind does that you make a two-hour film or an hour and a half and then you're done but he needed he needed to make a ten and a half hour film or he's not releasing anything mm. um. So one thing I find interesting is that when I talk to some film students, <laughs> yeah. these film students who I, who I think would know a lot about film, which I don't know a lot about film, I'm still learning, I'm a, I'm a junior, I hope that I can learn as much as I can in this next year, but when I talk to these people, I'm like, hey, you know slow cinema, right? They're like, slow what? <laughs> well, I'm like... Well, what? <laughs> Nick loved that one. Cinema because... the word they would know. <laughs> yeah, yeah Sin was like, what? 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 <laughs> what? Well, okay. This is let's let, let, let clearly you seem to want to have on, on the podcast something that we were talking about off the podcast. So I'm just gonna I'm just gonna go ahead and say it. Um, 
Number one, it's going back to what Lev Diaz said. Don't think about slow cinema or uh, fast cinema or, or uh, crime cinema or love cinema. No, there's cinema, short cinema. There's cinema. Mm -hmm. And if you are a film student, if you are a filmmaker, if you are mm -hmm. a cinephile, if, you, if that's what you want to do is make films, then I do not believe you have the luxury of going, I'm just not into slow cinema. I'm just not into this type of cinema. And you hear I'm, this a lot? Because, yeah. Okay. And I don't, people want to have a genre. And it's which like, you can't. If no. you want to, because you don't need to love, Lav Diaz doesn't need to be a favorite filmmaker. Paul Thomas Anderson can be a favorite film. Paul Thomas Anderson is amazing. But you, you need to know what Lav Diaz is doing. Yeah. You know, you need to. Otherwise, you're not doing the necessary work that you need to do to become a filmmaker. Mm -hmm. You yeah. know? So we should stop putting film in all these boxes. And the thing is, the more films you watch, the more these boxes really disappear. So yeah. if you are erasing these boxes and just watching films. Lav Diaz, he sounds interesting. I'm going to see what he's doing. But Bing Wong, he sounds interesting. I'm going to see what he's doing. Howard Hawks, he sounds interesting. I'm going to see what he's doing. Paul Thomas Anderson, he sounds interesting. I'm going to see what he's doing. That's what you need to do. So regardless if the people like the movies or not, they, they shouldn't say, no, I don't want to go see that. I don't want to watch this 10-hour film. Because you can't right? generalize, because you can't put them all in a box. So you haven't right? seen it. Because you, you haven't seen But even if you've seen one, if, you've seen, if you see from what is before, and you go, I didn't like that. Well, that you can't bunch them all up into yeah. one. Yeah, thing. you can like I'm not gonna watch Bing Wong. You watch. can so build up to the long film too. And what's important also to know about like cinema when we talk about these guys that you know like a Dostoevsky or a Tolstoy or something those are like thousand yeah. page novels and like well, you, that's, ha you have to read those. Yeah, and those are immensely more difficult to get through than a ten hour film just in terms of yeah. how much time you actually yeah. do spend yeah. to do it. And so more you than get, so you're, you're drawing yeah. a parallel between reading Tolstoy and right. watching. Give me a filmmaker. Lev Diaz, Costa, or all of the above. Yeah. And you know, we we're giving labels to these filmmakers. And I think, as a student of cinema, mm -hmm. um, you have to. And I think with a lot, especially the guys we're talking about, because a lot of them kind of border on the experimental. Mm -hmm. I think you need to approach it not as oh, he's a slow filmmaker. He's a you know, he's a he's a romance filmmaker. He's a filmmaker. And especially for Lav Diaz and these guys, I think you have to approach it as, because I don't think they go, I'm a slow filmmaker, make no. slow films. They go, I'm a filmmaker. Mm -hmm. And that's because I think when you are truly making innovative cinema, every film you make is, you know, recreating the whole world. You are building something that's never been made before. And I think you have to look at it as not a part of cinema, but as a creation that's never been done before, totally divorced from any other film. And I think too many people go, Oh, this filmmaker always kind of like this guy. Mm. Every filmmaker is their own, you know, every filmmaker is an island. Mm. And every film they make is another island. And I think that... And that's a good way to think so you can open up your creativity. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think a huge issue is people going, oh, what genre? You know, they care about genre. Yeah. Genre. Jesus yeah, Christ. Yeah, think about it. You know, it's such a narrow way of looking at it because, you know, they go, it's a comedy film because it made me laugh. But I think it is too restricting and it gives people too many uh, notions of what the film should be. Well, what you're talking about is kind of interesting because when I first saw The Lobster, I saw The Lobster in, um, actually it showed in like a, a regular theater, I think. Like it a, showed Like an AMC. AMC. Yeah, it yeah. And, and I was in the theater, I was with like 10 people, which is kind of small, show up for a, a movie that's in a regular theater. Um, it was also like 4 p.m. That was the whole audience? That was 10 people. 10 people. But uh. 10 people I think is pretty good for Lobster and AMC at 4 p.m. I think. Yeah. So I went to see it, and I, w I didn't know anything about Yorgos Lathimos before that movie. But when I watched that movie, I was like, this is kind of funny. I thought it was a funny movie. I was like, ha! Ah. And I was, I was laughing. I was like, oh. The thing, the thing it's like was, great yeah, I'm really going to laugh. But the, the funny thing was, when I was laughing, 
Nobody else was laughing with me. Nobody thought the movie was funny. Nobody thought the movie was funny because they, I mean, talking about genres and, and the, the, like the, the people, when they, the, the general viewer, when they go into a movie, they're like, I, I'm not supposed to laugh at this because of the way it's shot. So, uh, so, um, <laughs> so, with deciding, so deciding to laugh and not to laugh during a film, it's, it's, it's interesting. Yeah. That's interesting because you run the cult cinema club. Yeah, because people, yeah, because people laugh a lot. And I went you, to you guys. Well, laugh. I went to the cult cinema club last year, and you guys showed John Waters' Pink Flamingos. Yeah, and the, everybody was. Ah! That was a that was a crowd film. That yeah, was that's yeah. kind of that's kind of it's literally not, more than this. Everybody, people were like losing their minds. It was like Jesus Christ. Yeah, I, was, I heard I was you guys, they were rolling in the aisles. They, I was they, honestly they impressed off, with like they exaggerate? Um, during, no, during the, there's there's no exaggerating what happened. <laughs> there, there's, <laughs> there's, Jesus, the police came. They people went like, yeah, we're like putting their arms like this, and it was like a concert. Yeah. it's only it's only so yeah. that's not it's only like specific films that are kind of crazy like that. If the, the guy's like opening opening up his butthole, opening like you're gonna get a, you're gonna get yeah you're gonna get a reaction a chicken out or of fucking it. Fucking exactly. with the chicken, scratching the girl's face. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, but she's being maimed. Have you seen that? I haven't seen. So we haven't seen fun. Now that we're talking about people, Mingo's a little bit. I say multiple maniacs. It's 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 challenging to decide like whether or not like. Who, who would not laugh at something like Pink Flamingos? And it, I would agree that Lobster is a funny film. And some people see that it's shot, it's shot well. Mm-hmm. Or they'll, they'll see something, something flashy. So the, the Revenant came out two years ago. Yeah. Would you not laugh at that because it looks good? Would you not? Do, yeah. do you think it depends? Do you think the audiences see that and kind of question whether or not how they should view this if they the don't brain, know what the they brain should can't, view it? Well, it's, it's like, weird. It's really weird because I saw In Vanda's Room alone. Right, that was how I watched the film. Were you just laughing no. alone? No, like, oh, <laughs> like, oh, Mom was like, "What are you watching?" And there's like, "No, um, I watched Invando's Room Alone," and I thought, "Jesus Christ, like this is a, a a brutal film." You know, it's a masterpiece. Everyone should watch it, but it's a brutal <laughs> film. It's an important film for the history of cinema. So, to anybody's listening, Invando's Room. But anyway, yeah, it's a brutal film, and you're watching it, and you're like, "Jesus Christ, this is like really brutal." And then I saw it last summer in the theater with an audience. And everybody was like laughing, and I was like, "Jesus Christ, oh this is!" And I kind of saw it. I kind of saw that. Okay, it was... no pity for junkies. <clears throat> no, no. No, I mean, because <laughs> it's funny. What they're saying is funny, and you know, to talk about. And I'll ask you about this. Happiness by Dot Salons, mm. which is we showed that at the art house. Yeah. And a lot of people went, yeah. And a lot of people went, oh, and I watched this alone. I was like, ah, oh, that's so disturbing. And I watched it in the theater. You know, everybody was laughing in our screening. You know, so that you can't really like. How can you say that Invana's room is comedic? You you can't. Mm. How can you even say that? You yeah, know, or in the th- woman who left, the guy walks through the frame three and a half hours in and goes, oh, I fucking hate my life. We're in this destructive film by Lav Diaz and some just like, I'll say a white dude, like the guy who's like not from the Philippines, like some like he's surfer like, bro yeah. or whatever, kind of walks through the frame when she's like trying to find her friend. And it's like really, you're like, oh my God, this movie's really brutal. And he goes, I fucking hate my life. Yeah. This is bullshit. <laughs> but if yeah, I've seen that alone. Me and her row were just like cackling. Yeah, just the guy with the guitar. But if I'd yeah. seen that alone, I might have gone, okay, this is kind of an interesting thing. But I'm like, Jesus fucking Christ. <laughs> well, so you, you said, mentioned happiness before. I think I, I think I was the one that told you, like, I watched happiness and like, yeah. Oh my God! This is horrifying. Yeah. I watched it with the crowd. It was a, it's a, it was a crowd you can't movie stop as well. Laughing. You can't I stop. saw Gummo last night at midnight. I saw, oh, I saw that. How'd that go? So people were cracking up. If 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 you haven't seen Gummo, there's there's the whole bathtub sequence. It's like the most the iconic part of the yeah, movie. It's the image yeah. everyone uses it's, it's, in the film. Exactly. People were laughing a whole lot during that sequence, and I was like, what? That I, like I, 
you can either question the laughter or go with it. Yeah. I was questioning that laughter. Because mm. well, it almost, because it felt like they were almost laughing for the sake, like, oh, I knew that. I knew what yeah, was going on. Yeah. Like, oh, I get it. It's I get like it. when so, I saw 2001 at the 70 millimeter film test. I wasn't, but people were like <laughs> laughing because, you know, because it was so iconic. Because it was so already it, the, like, the, the cultural first, psyche that you're like, oh, that's the moment. Yeah, there's, there's like, so a, really, there's there's like a hipster being, asshole. People love being in on it. Yeah, yeah, it's exactly. a, yeah it's a, there's like a hipster asshole laugh? in the they back crowd in the back they row laugh. going like hey! when they know when they see the sequence yeah, that we, everyone knows. We saw they, possession and it was like people were just saying the lines out loud and like oh. cackling and it was really bizarre. Where you see it for possession? That music, music box. box theater. <laughs> and people were like, I'm gonna fucking kill you. Yeah, you know, okay. they're like saying that. Yeah. yeah, well, you know, you're talking about uh, going into a theater, not you know, expecting people to laugh and all that. That's. Well, you know, it's like going back to genre. It's people have expectations. Mm. And I think a big part of it, when you go into like an art film, you know, if you want yeah. to say The Lobster is an art film. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if I would, but... Sure. Um, but people come in with all of their knowledge of cinema put together. Oh, my God. Yeah, people come in with their whole knowledge of cinema and everything they've experienced in a movie theater and at mm. home and with Netflix and everything. And... They have expectations of what a film is supposed to be. And I think that, you know, to truly appreciate, you know, experimental films, slow cinema, whatever you want to call it, mm -hmm. any sort of unique piece of cinema, I feel like the best way to do it is to get into a mind, uh, mindset where you go, I've never seen a film in my life. Mm -hmm. This is a wholly new invention for me, and I'm going to experience something I've never experienced before. And I think that's, mm -hmm. you know, and I, it's difficult to do. I think it's probably impossible to do, but I think that's, maybe the purest way to experience a film is, you know, having never seen one in your life or assuming, you know, trying to put yourself in a state that you've never seen one in your life because you come in with all these assumptions you make because of genre and, you know, the traditions of narrative and all the bullshit that's like hammered into you by yeah. contemporary, you know, film culture. But you wouldn't say to do that for every movie because in every movie is like... Well, no, not, you know... Big Mama's House too. <laughs> well, I mean, if you go into that without trying to t trying to take out every other movie you saw, you'd be like, wow. Like, if you're talking about like a, a level where you can delete memories, you'd be like, oh my god, look at the shots in Big Mama's House too. Well, well, you know, it's uh, it's you swings and roundabouts. Well, have you guys ever shown like Have you guys ever shown like um, Boo and Madea's Halloween? No, have you guys ever shown like like I showed Horse Money to my mom? Because, you know, I had to. I showed horse money uh, uh, yeah. I showed horse money to a friend of my dad's, even. Me and my we, friends got high and watched Upper Fake. Oh yeah, well, <laughs> that's a little different. They were like, what is it? What is this movie? Like, I like, had to pause it because they're just like, what's going on? Yeah. So, and I like, well, watched him. I watched Night and Fog with my dad. He's like, oh, war movie. I love war movies. Oh my God. Well, yeah, in those situations, I think, again, well, I, I have the two. I'm sure you didn't. Well, it's a beautiful movie, but it's, it's hard to watch. Um, I showed horse money to my mom and a friend of my dad's because we were together over the summer. We were just talking all the time, and you wanted kind of to see what I was. You wanted to see what I was talking about so much, and they looked at something, you know, and they and they aren't cinephiles, but they looked at horse money and they like, they were incredibly moved by it, wow. you know, because there is, there is something about having like mm. that purity to you, you know, just being like that pure about you know cinema, just, and that's something about the great works is we're talking about oh it's impossible to watch this, impossible to watch that, but the great works. Regardless, if you just are concentrated and you mm -hmm. give yourself to it, mm -hmm. anyone can really have like a beautiful, powerful connection. Right. How, how many movies do your parents watch? Like, are they not 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 that many? My mom goes to the theater with her friends, you know that type of thing, but she doesn't watch movies regularly. Mm -hmm. And she watched Horse Money, and she goes, "Wow, 
There's something crazy about that, right? Is it something about how film is ingrained in our brains that makes us, Mm. like, sometimes detached from specifically slow cinema? Is that, like... Potentially. I mean, Costa showed... He always shows his films to the people in the neighborhood, and he'll talk about how when he made Bones, people told him, like, oh, you're making your abstract drama or whatever, like, you're... That's whatever, and... But that's not like the neighborhood or something. Yeah, he got like they, a critique. When they told him, because I, I love this line, because mm. I know we both heard it in the Envanda's room director's commentary, mm-hmm. was, uh, he said, oh, the guys in the neighborhood <laughs> said, uh, oh, uh, you should make movies about, you know, more, you know, drop the strange poetry or whatever you're doing and just, you know, make things about more specifically us. I just love it. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's strange poetry as well. Right, yeah. yeah. And we've had this conversation yeah. about, because um, slow cinema, you, where I think where it goes wrong and where you get into like films that are just not well made is when you start thinking, oh, well, I'm trying to win a prize at Venice or something, and you're not... Because you're not... Because Jean-Marie Straub, for instance, like we are talking about earlier, um, he's convinced that this is for the masses. Like, cinema is still the most accessible form, even if you're going to make an inaccessible thing. So when he's going to take, you know, a Sophocles text and then make a film out of it, that's still servicing the audience and servicing the people, like the working people to an extent. So it's kind of hard to believe that some of these filmmakers actually are taking into account like very, very common people, even though they're not as likely to get into the situation as like, like Alav Diaz, for instance, when his films are made, they only show at like the premier festivals and then the people at the festival see them and then they disappear onto, onto oh, online and like where you can illegally download them. But it's important to understand the universality to it, that you can still be concentrated on it. A person can actually still go to a work of cinema. That's probably like the ideal hope yeah. of slow cinema or any, you know, the further avant-garde of, of cinema is that if you go to a place, people yeah. are going to follow you there. Or if they attempt to follow you there, that's at least worth the journey. Yeah, and I, and I think my horse money story proves exactly that, right? Is that you yeah. can have like my mom, who's yeah. like not interested in cinema, watch it and, and have like a powerful, really powerful like viewing experience, you know? So what you were saying is kind of it, the slow cinema isn't like made for cinephiles. It's made maybe by cinephiles, some of them at least. Well, but I think what we're reaching at is that there's no slow cinema. Is there cinema and it's made for for people? For people. Yeah. yeah. And and I think the reason I'm, I'm, I keep on saying the term is to to tell the audience about this term and then yeah. and then they can and then they can learn from after knowing the term. Yeah. Um, but what you're saying is like they make these movies. Still keeping in mind the audience. It's, mm-hmm. I mean, uh, a general audience. Yeah. Not, not somebody who is astute in their knowledge of films. And that's some... I don't think that. I mean, maybe. I, I think it's for people that are mm-hmm. kind of adjusted to filmmaking. I mean, well, it's like how Tarkovsky talks about how children, when they watch his films, it's what he likes the most because they seem to have the best interpretation of his work. <laughs> like, so it's something it, it, like yeah. that. It's what in, in Renoir's The River, right? The world is made for children. Is that, is, that, is, that, is that the line that they say? Yeah, I mean, you can say the film's made for the cinephile audience or general audience. But I think any, a lot of great filmmakers, I think the person they make films for are themselves. And, you know, it's mm-hmm. just the fact that people see, get to see them I think, you know, like us, we, we're filmmakers. If I, I make films for myself, I don't make films because I want to, you know, get into Venice and have everyone go, oh, you, you made that movie. Fucking good job, buddy. It's, I think it's difficult to say because, you know, film is an art form. Yeah. And you get into intention. Why are you making art? Is it because you want to entertain people? Is it because this is 
all you can do to manage to survive is by making art. Yeah. Why do you make art? And I think it's different for every artist, but yeah, you make films and if you want them shown, it has to be somewhat accessible so people can see them. <laughs> but I think the only person you should have in mind when you're making a film is yourself. Yeah, I think I think it's uh, I I I'm, it's a tri it's a tricky it's a tricky test. thing. But I don't right. think I make films for myself. I think oh. I make films for you know that girl that I was in love with in high school. <laughs> that <laughs> that love me back. In a way, I make films for you. I make films for you. I make films for you guys to think I'm you know because I want I want you guys. Yeah, and Nick was in one of my films. Uh, Zach as well. Um, Taylor worked on one of my films as well. So it's kind of we have I, like yeah. A, I was an, I was a good sound boy. I, I was <laughs> no, no, no. Sound is is half. It's half of it. Um, so you know, it's also for myself. Obviously, I want to make something. You know, I'm. It's it's me. I'm making it. But at the same time, like I'm, I want people to see it. I want specific people to see it. I want to. I don't know. Maybe. Yeah, I'm, I want. I'm trying to prove something. You know, it's like I not, love that. Yeah. A little, you know, you have. What the hell? So I think. Well, I think inherently. Yeah, you go for it. Go you don't, for it. You don't just become. You don't just become. Okay, guys, what is that? Oh well. There's just a picture of me with your head and <laughs> Taylor Hentrip, boom operator. Over well, your head. I'm just recalling back to when you presented yeah. your film, Boom yeah. Off by Taylor. Yeah. That's really wild. Well, That's a well, wild photo. Well, I. What I'm saying is, I don't think. You just become an artist, right? You don't just become, you know. Oh, okay. Well, you don't want to be an architect or an artist. Well, and there's a lot of artistry in, in well, architecture. Some filmmakers claim that. Yeah. Well, like, oh, we well, can... I make films. I'm not like an engineer. Yeah. Like, uh... Well, I, I'd like to know what you have to say about this. Uh, but let me finish my. Yeah. Because I'd like to know which filmmakers say it, and I kind of want to okay. ask you some questions about what you just said. But in terms of me, the way I look at it myself is, I just don't. I didn't become a filmmaker because because. I became a filmmaker because there was something in me that wanted to, you know, prove something or, or express something. It came off like an anxiety or off a... It didn't came just... It didn't, it, again, maybe it came because of that girl in high school or because of that... Because of that attractive woman that was my neighbor. Stuff like, that's where it comes from because I had to prove something to them. You know, it's like a... God, it's like the social network, right? You, that's, that's why. That's how you like you make Facebook. Is that there's this girl who you're in love with, and she breaks up with you in the middle of this bar. Like that's where. And I'm not saying my films are, you know, as grand as Facebook. Facebook is obviously something like this. I don't know. If, yeah, but it's the same idea, right? That you are driven. Yeah. To prove to something, you know, because it, it, like who the fuck? It's like a horrible thing to make films, you know? It's like a, it's like horribly vulnerable and it's, you have to show them to people and then people give you all this fucking shit for it. So you have to be in like a really, I think, fucked up mindset to go, yeah, you know what, I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna do this my whole life. I'm gonna take a camera and try to get all these people and try to get all this, all this stuff. Like it's something that you need to be really driven to like prove or, or express or, 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 or forget. Yeah, to, <laughs> to get to that level, you know, that doesn't just come because it's so crazy. The idea that we would just yeah. make films is absurd. It's an absurd thing that I would like ask Taylor to hold like a fucking microphone, and I ask another guy to like, to, like I ask Nick to eat a sandwich, and I ask as grossly as possible. I ask, what the fuck am I doing? You know, Jesus Christ! Like, well, where does that come from? You have to, you have to be, you have to have some modicum of insanity to say, I'm going to make films. I'm going to make art for my whole life. Yeah, you know, it's fucking ludicrous. Especially when you say, I, oh, when you're not saying, oh, I want to make a wacky slapstick comedy, oh, I want to make a buddy, a buddy comedy. You say, <laughs> yeah. I want to make this very personal story that I can't really quantify or give a genre to. 
it's you're putting yourself in a very inaccessible place. It's you're making your life more difficult to live. Yeah, you, you have to have a very strong drive. Yeah. You have to have a, a passion. A, you have to have an un unquenchable need to make films. Yeah, either you're trying to understand yourself or trying to understand yeah. someone, and you I know, think, and it's, you tough. Know, everyone, it's tough everyone, to do that. Everyone has a different intention, you know. Yeah. You uh, you have your reasons, you know, and your different drives to do it, and I think everyone does. Everyone has their own reasons of doing it. And, um, you know, yours is to maybe to, to prove something <laughs> to someone. Yeah. But, you know, I know a lot of, you know, a lot of people I know, especially the people who make more experimental, more avant-garde stuff, mm. is, you know, they just, they see cinema and they see it as a, a medium in which they can, you know, have the utmost creative abilities and they do amazing things with it. And it's not because, you know, they're trying to make a couple bucks because there's no way. They do it because they have this desire and they say, there's nothing else I could do. I have to make films. And I feel the same way. I have to make films. If I'm not making films, what the fuck am I going to do? Yeah. Am I going to... Am I going to sit at a desk? I mean, at this point, I feel like I put so much time and thought into um, being a filmmaker that if I wanted just one day to be a doctor, I'd be like, I'm fucked. Because I, yeah. I put too much time into that. I would be, if I was a doctor or a surgeon, I'd be like thinking yeah. about, oh, this would be a great shot. <laughs> it's, just too, it's just too ingrained in my brain. Uh, I want to I ask you about the way you, because I didn't really hear what mm. you said. You said that some filmmakers go, oh, I could be an engineer similarly as I could be a filmmaker. If, if that's what you said, I think that's connected to something that also Coaster talks about all the time and uh, Straub and all those guys which is cinema is like work right because I think mm. there's this idea that you know if you're like a filmmaker you know you're in this you're in this like uh, you're in this landscape of imagination and thought and dreams and daydreaming but I think what you know Coaster says all the time is it's work is you have to put in actual work like actual manual mm. labor and this idea of work cannot be lost in cinema. You have to like, and this is what I was kind of discussing earlier about how we like change the way people make films with, in Vando's room is what he said was, okay, I'm gonna go there every day, nine to five. You know, I'm gonna work every day, nine to five, I'm gonna go. And, and this idea I think is important that you know that you're doing work and you, you know, it's still dreaming and stuff, but this idea of, of working, of putting effort, of sweating is essential. Is that sort of what you were? Yeah, I'd say so. I mean, you guys mentioned why you make films and stuff. I remember the first memory I have is, not ever, but of wanting to make films is maybe when I was like seven or eight, and I was like in a parking lot, and I told my mom that I'd either make films or like make books. And it didn't, it didn't what, come like a printer? <laughs> so it, it didn't come from an impulse of like the further place that I feel like I'm in now when I make a film, which is, I see it, as you're saying, prove, I do feel like I'm, I'm proving that I exist, like, at all. Yeah. And, like, that's also why I feel like if I'm in one of my films, I can at least, like, point and say, there I am, yeah. I actually am right there. Yeah, um, that, like, I've caught myself with this camera. Um, that's kind of, like, more of a barren way of saying what he was saying. You're, mm. you're making it to tell that girl, I'm alive, like, almost, Yeah, 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 that's a good point, yeah. 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 It's, yeah. Show it's, it's definitely yeah. related, yeah. yeah. Um, but I do think, like I said, with me as a younger child, that impulse is still like, well, I could do it better than them. And so it's not like I'm going to do it better so I can like get the prize, which mm -hmm. is what I think a lot of people go into cinema for. Um, like the Hollywood type of stuff. Like I the want money the, prize. Yeah, the glory. Like the glory as in like you get to be on stage and like give a speech and stuff. But it's a simpler, and why I did bring up the engineer thing. Um, is that it seems to be more like a, like a technical, and you're saying work. Like it just seems like, oh, well, that's what I would like to do. And, it's not quite like, okay, well, I'll be an architect and like whatever, but there is, I think there is a very, um, there's an infantile 
confidence to be an artist that like you you have like you can't just it's not like you're 20 and then you think oh well i'm good at drawing and now i'm gonna be an artist <laughs> like you like say it very early on and you just see from a very early age that that's something you can so a filmmaker that mentioned um this kind of thing well i mean there's, there's yeah. some people who like honestly they want to have good sound like yeah. They want you to have the sound for your film because well, they, they trust your film will be good. Oh, let's put this. Oh, Yeah, 
He's heart reacting. So there's a filmmaker named. Uh, <laughs> he's a Polish filmmaker that died in the 90s. His name is Krzysztof uh, Kieslowski. Kieslowski, yes. And he made like the Three Colors trilogy and the Decalogue, and he's a very famous Polish uh, filmmaker. And when he was talking about um, in an interview, I don't remember what which one. Why he went into cinema, I think he just said, like, oh, well, it was either I was going to be an engineer or be, like, a doctor. I didn't want to do that, so I just went to film school. So that's kind of, like, how the decision... Um, I think what, wasn't what he said was, um, I knew someone who could get me into the film school. If I knew yeah. someone who could get me into the architecture school, I would have been an architect. Yeah, that's yeah. the exact quote, right. So where we're going with this conversation, it certainly gets very difficult to figure out why, especially, like, in, in a country like Poland in that era, like, to be in like a communist uh, place, and he talks about in that interview how the process of like writing a script in that time period was very specific because you got paid for like the outline of the script, you got paid for writing the script, and then you got paid for like like the further levels. So it was very regimented for all of it. So there was, uh, as as far as how the cinema uh, production companies were ran or at least financed or at least how people were paid on the structure it does remind you not of like a cinema structure it seems a bit more regimented or more like they're engineers or something like he he's doing a job and every level they check that and yeah comparing that to like where we are now slow cinema and all that stuff that um him making films in that place and the other thing with like the internet and digital and stuff and like we're talking about with liberation in other eras, like you could have censors, like with Kieslowski, he said he became a better filmmaker because further into the levels, he had to be ahead of the censors. He can't just be like, oh, this is my anti-communist film, which it wasn't, but he certainly had his critiques within the society that probably they wouldn't have liked to accompany uh, their name or their, their government. Um, but because they were checking at all the levels, he became better at kind of having this subliminal stuff going on that was kind of not anti-government but was critiquing the society and would allow for him to make his film. So with film in that era, like so 1980s I think is when he was starting And that's out. what he like was interested in when making his films, those subliminal things rather yeah, than the actual. For sure. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Like he, he would make very proper narratives but then there's certainly quite a lot underneath it that you can start figuring out like okay what was, like if you see the Decalogue for instance, you're, you're really very aware of what Poland was like 
in that era. And that's a good, I mean, I wouldn't call the Decalogue slow cinema, but that's like a 10 hour. It's not. They're incredibly like yeah. narrative fast. Right. Well, it's 10 one hour episodes. So yeah. it, it aired on Polish television and it's kind of off the, so the Decalogue that's off of the, uh, the Ten Commandments um, is like kind of what you hear and that's what you hear about his cinema. And that's why I bring up uh, Kieslowski and like that, uh, the anecdote. Um, because it is very interesting for him specifically that he he just takes one thing like the three colors trilogy yeah. is like the three colors of the French flag and like you know there's like what liberty and like it's uh, it's a uh, fraternity liberty and equality right mm -hmm. so he kind of takes that as like maybe like the theme but what's so fascinating about the Kislowski cinema is that when you watch like the Decalogue it's not like each episode is like okay thou shall not you know pray to false idols or something. Like some may be a, li a little bit more concerned with that commandment than others, but it kind of mixes all together. So as we're talking about like him being an engineer or something or a very, a very proper working person, there is a place to start. And I think that's also like we're talking about with Costa um, or Straub, some of the stuff with some of these slow cinema guys is that, and girl, uh, Chantal Ackerman, is that there is a very, very simple and direct place and I'd almost say that slow cinema and like this this let's say a genre or more like a movement and like how cinema's progressed is a very very direct uh, result of like we're saying with like digital getting coming out of film and being easier to um, get a camera and all that so it is like very direct beginnings but it's kind of tricky to figure that out when you see the films because they do get to very stylized places that I mean you wouldn't quite believe that the Decalogue isn't just first episode is on this commandment, second is on this commandment. Because he kind of just throws it out. He kind of just has that rumbling around with each of them and each of the films. And yeah, it was on TV, but people show it in theaters. So you can have that conversation about Berlin Alexanderplatz and if that's <laughs> slow cinema. So there's stuff that goes into TV too that's kind of tricky, I would say. One, one thing that kind of interests me about even making movies in a you know, regimented country like, I mean, how Poland was maybe, it was Poland? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I, I kind of what interests me about like Pedro Costa making horse money is it's not only the film is interesting and in how how he goes about telling the story, but also the way he makes the story. And, and a lot of a lot of what you guys have said and like how like you know the, the little anecdotes about how the directors have made their films. I mean, I thought like oh Paul Thomas Anderson kind of writing a fan thread with um Daniel, with Daniel Day Lewis, Lewis yeah. the main actor of that film was kind of interesting. There's there's things that are well, like, like Horse Money, when, you know, Ventura kind of wrote Horse Money with, you know, Pedro Costa. It's like his memories, it's like his yeah. life, you know. And and the thing is like uh I'm going to talk about film school a little bit. I just fucking hate like that how <laughs> film school. I I kind of hate how it's so like structured. Like I mean, I uh, get I get the basics, but there's a guy who's very well respected in the film industry by people at the top and he's making movies basically where he's I don't know like taking like what you're saying about mm -hmm. shooting 10 hours of footage then throwing out what he made in um, was it America yeah exactly yeah. And, and just picking the narrative there I mean that's kind of like a weird like post-production process while productions happening right. and and like you know is, is there's there some people who like are like there's not like a post-production uh, um, sorry there's not there's no pre-production or something like that. There's a guy named Albert Serra mm -hmm. who's also very. This is, Can't believe we just brought him up. Yeah, right Albert Serra. 80, Eighty-two minutes. There in are a fair amount of names we've glossed over. Yeah, I mean. A so anyway, well, no, we talked about a couple. Oh well, I was late. Yeah. <laughs> so, 
Albert Sarah. Oh yeah, I was gonna bring that up too. I, I was gonna bring up. Uh, I should be taking notes. Yeah, I was gonna bring up Regatus uh, earlier because of a line we we're talking about with. He's a um, great man. Because he says it's sharing. Like you're yeah, talking yeah. about how. I was thinking about bringing. That up. Yeah, exactly. That like, <laughs> you know, it's not for yourself and it's not for. It's like it's a, this in between, like making a film and you're like sharing. But anyway, uh, Albert Sarah, what he says he makes his films for. Um, I've heard this in an interview that he. It's for the beauty, it's not for truth. You're not making a film for truth, you're making it for beauty. And he's like, you're making it for beauty, no? And that's like, he like asks the interviewer and uh, talking about the post-production, his, how he does it is he has, he, he, he writes an incredible amount of scenes, like I don't even know how many. And then he has three cameras, digital cameras, rolling nonstop every day throughout the production. And he gets like 400 hours of material that's like what he says is about the number, like 400 hours. And then he takes that and he makes like the two hour film. So along wow. those lines, Albert Serra is, is deeply interested in causing chaos, not organized. And he talks about how this is an anti-film school approach, like his approach. Mm -hmm. um, so if the, he's talking to like a cinematographer or something, then he, um, he might say like to the assistant director, like, oh, I don't think the cinematographer is doing a very good job. And he kind of like creates chaos on the set and he, <laughs> he doesn't reshoot anything. He tries to get these honest moments, but it's not for truth, it's, it's beauty, right? It's, it's beautiful moments. It's stuff that you can't possibly have caught if you had to do that on film because the digital, the digital camera can shoot forever. And so he has so much material that he starts just like uh, with the film Story of My Death, which is kind of a hybrid about Casanova and Dracula. And so essentially with the film, you can describe it as a, a film about period and um, period shifting or history changing is like a simple way to put it. Like it's, that's deeply connected to everything we're talking about. But he explained with that film that he was, he was creating conversations within the film that had no, they didn't match at all. It isn't like chronological it isn't like cut to cut like you cut from one person's face to the next person's face and they're going back and forth and they're talking it was it's so hard to describe it's it's a formal approach so you're you're very aware that there's like this this room between what they're saying that he's pairing together but it's it's very subtle it's hard to see it but so he was essentially making conversations on the screen that weren't really happening it was yeah. like so if I say like, oh, well, yeah, this is this thing about like art or something. And then you cut to someone talking about something else and he would match it so that it, it is like juxtaposing itself in this, in this really tough to describe way. Cause you can't quite pick up on that when you see his films, but it's, it's super, um, it's very natural. He, he liked how a critic described his films as dif diffused naturalism. I think that's what he said. Um, and he's always, he really prides himself on being asked if, his films are written, you know, if there's any writing to it, because they seem improvised, but they also are really, you know, they're saying like very complicated lines at times, you know, and like talking about very poetic things. And these are like monologues people are giving. And, and he says like, yeah, people are like, well, is, is it screen written or... And he talks about how people believe that there had to have been writing there but they just don't believe it because it's so natural and it seems like it's happening right there and that's what he likes he likes having this process be really chaotic and difficult to like pare down until the edit and so on story of my death for instance he changed the aspect ratio it was it was going to be three four and they shot four, it sorry they shot it as four three for like 
the entire production. Then when he got to the post production, he just changed it to like what, like widescreen, yeah. like two two zero to one. I'm not sure exactly what. It is. <laughs> it's like a widescreen. What did I do with the film? So the way he described it is because no cinematographer shot it like that, it's birthed when you see it. So that's an editor making the decision to make the widescreen. So the moment is like alive. So it's almost like he's attempting to preserve the, the, uh, the aliveness, the, the, the vibrancy of his film, of the people within it. And like that goes into, like I said, with the natural, um, diffuse naturalism, I believe is the term, that, and this is de definitely deeply related to all the slow cinema people, that they are looking for this, so you talk about the tremble with uh, Ventura, like, there's an amazing amount of footage around when you get to that moment in Horse Money. And with the films of Albert Serra, it is an attempt when you have all this footage and you're trying to get it down to this hour and a half, two hour film, um, even if they do seem long, to preserve what is alive. And you can have a, we can have a very long conversation about exactly what cinema is as an art, but there is a very interesting, it is a very interesting form because you do, you can organize it, but it also seems very, very chaotic and like it seems, like dance and like music and kind of uncontrollable and um, very, you know, it's not like it's planned, it's like improvised, like you can capture improvisation, but you can organize the captured improvisation. So at what point are you actually planning it out or are you actually writing, like what is writing in cinema? And so if you go along the entire line, it is this really tough to, to pare down form that like you have to keep checking it and keep like, like poking at it just so you can get to that final point where someone's seeing the movie and they can't quite tell if it's improvised or not. Mm -hmm. And that's when it's most alive. Like in Death of Louis XIV, uh, Jean-Pierre Leo has said that like, he felt like he was recreating, he was living through what would be his death. And you know, he plays King Louis XIV and it, the way they shot it was, you know, 16 days, I believe, 12 hours a day, him just in this, in this bed and like he was there and Albert Serra, put him there. It wasn't, he doesn't talk to the actors either. That's something he brings up that he believes through non-communication you can get even deeper performances and like you can get people that are even more natural because to be concerned with the director liking what you're doing or not in itself is the director controlling what you are doing and that's similar to I think you brought up Empire earlier. He loves Andy Warhol, uh, Albert Serra. And no, they all love Andy Warhol. All the guys are talking about love. Pretty much Andy everyone loves Andy Warhol. So and you know, if you see like Chelsea Girls, for instance, that that's kind of slow cinema too. Like it's pretty tough to watch, and it's tough to say what direction he's giving people. And but no, Albert Serra says he deeply was inspired by that kind of thing of like the fact that Warhol is there and he's behind the camera, and then the people are allowed to do whatever they want because there's still a constriction. But well, the Warhol thing is interesting because he's getting at something that's so. In terms of something that's alive or something that's natural, like um, Costa said that um, Warhol did in Beauty Number Two in an hour what he took three years to do in Invanta's Room in three years, it, and it's because of there's this other line which I think Warhol said that uh, having a girl, you can tell me if, if Warhol right. says this, but like having having a girl peel potatoes in a bed, you know, is like interesting. Just that, right? And I love that line so much because that's what sort of like having some, you know, just the fact if I haven't seen Chelsea Girls, but based on what I know of it, just having like someone being there. And we talked a lot about like filming ourselves and, and being alive on camera and, and just being there. Just having like a woman 
you know, well, breathe. It's, yeah. it's the tremble. Costa talks yeah, about. Yeah, or like Ventura just, trembling, like just Well, that, he talks right? about Shisnu Ryu, like in the in the um, Ozu film, and he says, oh, he oh, yeah. picks up the cup and I see him trembling. And like, or, no, and he says the camera is always trembling. Yeah, and he says Ozu the camera, too. yeah, the camera's trembling. So, <clears throat> yeah. It's something so that's about alive, it. right? Yeah. That's like the wind. Or I don't know what makes the Ozu camera tremble. I have no clue. But there's something that's literally there that's like alive making it tremble. Yeah. You know, or maybe is... Ryu was just nervous or maybe. something. Maybe. <laughs> Shaky camera. <laughs> and, we can, and we can go back to something we were talking earlier, which is just there's something very powerful and real and profound and grandiose and whatever you want to call it about just having someone breathe you know, on camera, but actually breathe. And that's another thing, there's, we talk about Paul, Paul Thomas Anderson, so let's talk about Paul Thomas Anderson. Um, there's a great thing with, uh, I, I'm too distracted with this, I'm sorry. Um, there's a great thing that, uh, there's a great podcast that Paul Thomas Anderson on, is on, where he basically describes him and Daniel Day-Lewis working, who actually sent this to me, and uh, he's saying that they were kind of talking, like Daniel Day-Lewis and Paul Thomas Anderson are talking about actors they like, mm-hmm. and uh, they're watching a movie, and Paul, so the, the way Paul Thomas Anderson works, he just watched movies on TV. So he calls Daniel Day-Lewis and he tells him, hey, there's a movie playing. Oh, tune in. And then you'll t- Daniel will tune in and they'll kind of talk about it afterwards. So afterwards they're talking and Daniel Day-Lewis has this line. He says, um, uh, do, you, do you remember that scene where John C. Riley's waking up? And Paul Thomas Anderson goes, yeah, I do. He's like, fucking Riley. He looks like he's actually waking up, you know? <laughs> and, and I love that line because that's true. And we kind of talked to Zach and I kind of talked about this when we watched Phantom Thread. It's like Daniel Day Lewis putting his socks on. It's real. It's alive, right? He's not. There's no acting. It's not. It's not. St- it's he's actually putting the socks on. And I yeah. highly recommend to everybody listening to this to go watch the movie and look at in the beginning of the movie how he puts his socks on. So just that, just having like that. Mm. Authenticity of having a girl peel potato, actually be peeling potatoes, or okay. having someone actually be putting a sock on and not performing, but just ha- having that be real is something that is immensely worth capturing, like in mm. any sort of artistic manner, you know. Um, well, but why why is that more interesting than well, seeing an actor like maybe try to capture what it is to lose their children? Well, it's not know? more or less. It, mm. It's not, mm. we're not, we're not, we're not, you know, I'm not saying it's, it's like either that. Yeah, it's, it's like or it's, you know. It builds it up. Like, Kieslowski yeah. comes into this. What's, what's her name? Juliet Binoche? Yeah, Juliet Binoche. Yeah. 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 She, I saw a thing about how she was talking about uh, in Kieslowski's films, because there's no money, yeah. you only do like a take. And like, mm-hmm. you, so you, you rehearse, you rehearse, you rehearse, and then you do one take and he actually did like a couple like two or three on one shot of Juliette Binoche and she's talking about in this in in an interview how she was really curious why he did more than one like usually he does one and she and she's like okay was that good and he goes yeah and 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 I think he was working through a translator or something like that like he was talking to someone to tell her what he was thinking and she asked like what was different about that one and and Kieslowski says to the translator and the translator goes to Binoche and, and they say oh uh, you were breathing differently in that one. <laughs> and Binoche just laughs because she thinks it's like unbelievable that the director would like, that's like his only, because at that point, if you're Juliet Binoche, like, what can you, what do you say to that woman? Like, she's an incredible performer. And like, at that point, like with Paul Thomas Anderson, he's giving these actors so much responsibility and they are very much deserving of the responsibility. And you know, you're talking about film school. I think one of the inherent problems in how directing is taught within film school is that you have to take these actors as seriously as if they are Daniel Day-Lewis, 
as if they have the capability of creating a character, which I think is a very authorial. Think we're not. Right, and they shouldn't. Directors should be given more ability to sculpt what where there isn't the ability to act, which is to work with like a non-professional, like we're talking about, or someone that's more alive than someone attempting to stage. But there's still something very subtextual about getting the right take, even with a great performer. And I know Paul Thomas Anderson does. He, they don't really rehearse, and he does like a lot of takes, from what I know, yeah. um, like 30, 40 takes. I don't know exactly like per shot or whatever, but. It's still very, it's still very fascinating that like that is still like advice you're not going to get in film school. That like if you're, if you have a genius actress that is like, essentially perfect. Like you couldn't want anything more than than her just to be there, and that in itself is good enough. That like something as subtle as how she's breathing dictates one take being better than another. Not that you can enter into her mind as an actress and get her to perform it differently because she's so where she is now is so built up to them that you can't just take it and like wrangle it, right? That's kind of like what a Kubrick would do or something, which still makes great films, but there's something very mature about allowing for a person to be who they are, and you can't change them. You can't, you can drive them insane, but then they won't like you anymore also, and... Um. Well, you know, I think it's, uh, it's you know, talking about we brought up Andy Warhol. Uh, you bring up his Chelsea Chelsea Girls as as piece of slow cinema. Um, although I think that's interesting, an interesting choice from his you know his whole right. body of work. Where you know I think the obvious choices are you know Empire, Sleep, Blowjob. You know those like really conceptual ones that are a single shot maintained over such a long yeah. course. Which is you know I usually when I think of slow cinema, I generally think of very very long shots. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know I connect that with. Uh, Lab Diaz, I connect that with uh, Sokorov, Russian Ark, would you guys call that slow yeah. cinema? Uh, maybe. I think it toes the line. I, I, yeah, would, not, I would not. No. I would not call it. See, I think... I, I, you I could argue. Some, some you could argue. Some, you could argue. It really depends on who you ask, but some people call it slow cinema. Yeah. Some, yeah. His yeah. Other, other films he's made were more, like Whispering Pages or The Stone in the 90s were yeah, much more like lost. Like It's not like there's a central guiding. Yeah, it was, yeah and it's, it's also tough to... Because I think, you know, people can either view slow cinema as, you know, what's going on with the camera, what's going on with, you know, the story, what's being presented. Like, you know, if you're doing, uh, like, you know, I, I look at Satan Tango as like the, hall, like the landmark of slow cinema. And we're talking about the reality of it, of someone putting on their socks, of, you know, bringing the actual life into it. <laughs> what I love about Satan Tango is that the one thing that kills me is that walking. Everyone has to walk everywhere, yeah. and you see it. It's not... I have to go to the store. Cut. Now I'm at the store. Yeah. You're presented with the reality of going from this horrible, run-down little yeah. shack that this guy yeah. lives in, this, this fat old author man, to trudging over with his wicker basket like a mile down the road, and yeah. it's so laborious yeah. and so struggling. Wow. And you have to watch him get there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what I that's what I said when it. we started the podcast was like a, a line that Bellatar said, which was, "It's not the logic of the story; it's the logic of life." Right. So it's like. <clears throat> you know, you you, yeah. you don't follow what why he's going to the store. You follow him like him going to the store is, is the film. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, that's, I got a good one too. <laughs> yeah, and uh, the thing the thing about the non-actor that's so you know, and there's actors that can do this, but the thing about the non-actor and I I worked a lot I work you know a lot with non-actors is if you ask them to you know. I don't know if Nick's I don't think Nick you can call him an actor, but anyway, <laughs> um, if you tell like 
If you well, are you a, no? You're like a screenwriter, filmmaker. You're I not spent like, years on the stage, Neville. Okay, sure, but you're not like a film school. Are you like a film school film film school trained actor? As far as I'm concerned, you aren't acting regularly, are no. you? Okay, well there are you go. Are you an actor? No. Oh, okay. There you go. Okay. I, I wouldn't identify as actor, but I have lots of experience. Acting. Yeah, sure, but it still is like a different. Well, it still is like a different thing, right? If you, if I work with you, then if I work with like a, a guy who's taking like an acting class, which yeah, here, 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 here at the school. Well, I'm not saying that those guys are, are bad. No, and I'm saying you. I've seen great films with you know student actors, but if you and that's something so key about that. I think you know we're talking about like academics and how like people should teach yeah. art. I think one thing that really should be taught is, you know, this is what we've been talking about this whole time, is that if you have like a, a box to open it, then just open that box. There's no acting to it. You know, if you have to like eat a sandwich, just eat it. If you have to like be on a bed, just be on that bed, you know? And that's something, and that's something that we're talking about in terms of authenticity, that if you, and a lot of these guys we talk about, they, they all are obsessed with that, and they all work mostly with non-actors. It's because of that. It's because you will actually get something that's yeah. real. When you, when you say things like that, though, is, is film about being as authentic and, and maybe naturalistic as possible? Well, there's or? something about that, yeah. There's something that's incredible. Well, no, no, but there is something about, as I was saying... Having elements of that? Some. Well, yeah, I mean, as I've Albert said multiple Sarah times, like, about... you can have, like... There's something that... I'll just let you go in one yeah. sec. There's something that is... It doesn't need to be the center, or that's you know you don't need to make this this general. But there's something that is incredible that is incredible about yeah, like, like you said, like capturing, like a, like this girl you know breathing on your bed. Like that's something that's true, yeah. you know, and that's something that's worth filming. And mm -hmm. you need to think about what's worth filming, you know. And if if if, if something is fake, mm -hmm. I'm, not, I'm not saying cinema is real. It's not just real. It's also fake. But if something is fake, right? If 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 Daniel Lewis isn't really putting his socks on, then it it's not. There's something there that... Yeah, performing, you know, putting his socks on. Yeah, if he's performing, putting his socks on, then it, it loses something, you know? There's something lost. Right, and it's still hard to see, like, because talking about yes. the socks, it's like he's, put it, he's putting his socks on. Yeah. But is he real? And, like, you know, we, we agree that he, he is. Because that's, like, where you get into really wild places, especially philosophically, considering what a camera is, is doing or what it means for a person to... To do anything in front of the camera. I mean, that's part of. I think that's just part of slow cinema. It's like mm. questioning so many elements of film. Yeah, exactly. And there's a line that uh, Sarah loved, Albert Sarah, um, when applied to his film, uh, The Death of Louis the Fourteenth. Someone said that it's. I forgot how they phrased it, but it involved this idea of uh, the 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 dramaturgy of presence. Yeah. So it's to think that. Jean Duchet said that. I okay. Thought. Yeah. So it's like dramaturgy. It's like. You have like narrative arcs and stuff, but if you have a movie and it's like a shot and like maybe there's no people in it or maybe there's a person and maybe it's just this being and this 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 attempt at accessing reality or something, um, more like a cinematographic mm -hmm. pursuit than it is like a cinematic pursuit almost, right? It's not like the graphic, uh, cinematographic. So like cinematographer and then cinematographic and. Brisson talks about this, like what notes from the cinematog uh, notes, uh, notes from the cinema uh, from the cinematograph, yes, yeah, cinematograph. which is like he doesn't mean like DP, he right? Means, like, and Brisson was famous for using not actors, and he would like he would really get angry when people would act, and he would strip their performances I mean, as much he, as he, he talked, could. He talked about them as models, you know, right? Like, just <clears throat> yeah. So to your point, and as far as the dramaturgy of presence goes, as, as Sarah talked about. Um, 
especially when you make slow cinema or when these guys are making their films, you, you realize that people don't just go into a film um, without their baggage. And we're talking about context and stuff. Yeah. And we're talking about, we can use the term archetype almost. Mm -hmm. That people know, like in we, we've had this conversation about horse money. That there is like the girl, and there is like the motorcycle, and then there's the soldier, and oh, yeah. there and is the knife. And, and the knife, and so there are these images that are um, they are archetypal, and you have a relationship with them. And cinema has a relationship with the girl and the knife yeah. and the motorcycle. So even if you have a shot of someone sleeping, that's still you still have the arc, and that's the dramaturgy of presence. That there's still a dramatic arc to presence itself and that's because of the relationship that is almost at this point unconscious but it's more like a subconscious level of how people are viewing films because mm -hmm. maybe it wasn't there when it first started and Costa also talks about how um, and a lot of filmmakers I mean Theo Angelopoulos the film Ulysses Gaze mm. with Harvey Keitel and it involves him like as a him trying to track down of one of the first filmmakers in Greece's work or Something I'm butchering it, but it, there are shots from like the first stuff shot in Greece with a camera. And when you do go through interviews and you do hear these these slow cinema guys talk about cinema, or like a Pedro Costa, they are still very very interested in this this point in cinema when they haven't made it this industry. It hasn't been off and running, and it hasn't been like all right. Well, we figured out what people want to see. We haven't we haven't figured out that if you do a stunt and you have a girl and you have like an arc, yeah. people will see it. They didn't figure that out. So it's, you know, factory closes and everyone leaves for the day. That's a very old uh, thing, but that's still staged, you know? Like, if you read about it... Uh, yeah. So they they're, were, they're interested almost like as if it was a caveman filmmaking. Right, exactly. So it, it's... And Costa talks about, and that's in Horse Money, too, the, fo the, the photographs at the beginning of the film yeah. are uh, Jacob Rees. And yeah. he's really interested in that because he doesn't see Jacob Rees as being... And I was taught Jacob Rees in, in high school, and it's not like this artistic thing. It's not like, oh, well, he's like Da Vinci, or he's like, you know, yeah. another artist, or he's not Picasso, but he's a photographer. And so it's very interesting when you're saying that cinema is an art, but there's also the photographic and cinematographic angle to it, because... He's documenting right. the streets of New York. And there's still enough of an innocence to it that they don't know what to do. And you see that in the photographs in the beginning of, of Horse Money, that these are these people that are kind of looking, but they kind of... So to get there mm -hmm. nowadays is not really possible. At this point, in some of the films I've made, I figured out that if you just have the camera, people mm -hmm. just walk around it. No one cares. And so maybe that's less natural. I wouldn't say so. I would just say that people are so almost unconsciously aware of the camera at this point because there is enough of a like a hundred years of people going to the movies and you know your father and your grandfather have been doing it that you understand that within the moment of a person sleeping there's still like we said the the dramaturgy of presence and there's still like these archetypes that you can't you can't just access the very innocent you can't just see it you know um, and we were talking about viewing films that Costa says it's very hard to see a film and that, it, that, that, that does mean to see the film. That doesn't mean like you're accepting the hero character and you're following it. To and see getting, the fact that they're making this movie. Right. And then you're critiquing if they're able to. And I think this is why people hate films that go off the, the path, is that they, they say that they're bad because they seem to believe that the filmmaker isn't capable of accessing the archetypes that have already been understood. Like there's the, the guy and the girl, and then there's the, the you know, the like the MacGuffin, as like uh, Hitchcock would yeah. talked about, something that would spark the narrative, and then you'd follow the narrative, and there'd be like the ups and downs, and like that's how to do it. Mm -hmm. Just because they're not doing that, 
doesn't mean that the films are bad, like slow cinema. Mm -hmm. It means that they're aware that you already are aware that everything that exists that concerning cinema is still involved in these archetypes and in this dramaturgy. And it's it's very it's like subconscious at that point. You don't need to tell people, well, the narrative arc is that Ventura. You don't need to put like years, for instance. Like that's a very simple thing that you could do to maybe make the film more understandable. And that's something that, when I see films that I get really upset about, it, it is simple shit like that. When they put like the year, they go like 1971. And it's like, sure, you know, like when you put text on the screen to tell people this place and this time is already getting into this very strange lie, but it's also, and you know, we can talk about all kinds of, well, all kinds of stuff from this. How, how do you feel about story implement story elements implemented into the text showing up on screen, mm -hmm. as opposed to the, just the time and area and space? It's tough because I mean there are great films that, that a brighter do stuff summer well. day, like a brighter right. summer day, yeah, yeah. There is which I think you can, cinema. which I think you can get. You, I think a brighter summer day does it perfectly because you can get like that context, which is you know you you get who are these people, like who, why are these kids here and where do they come from. And then in the end of A Brighter Summer Day, that also is interesting because it's kind of... The movie is very much about the time that it's in, like 1960 mm -hmm. and um, Elvis Presley in America. So I think mm. it can work, and I think in that case it works. And another thing that's interesting about A Brighter Summer Day is after you get to see this whole narrative, the movie's kind of implying with the text on screen, this actually happened, you know? So I think you can... I don't. I don't think that's what this is. What you're talking about? Because I see, you know, if you look at like the Hollywood film today, and you'll get like a lot of that stuff. But I think you can. It's not for me like a a rule. All right, you're doing this. This is immediately not interesting, or this is immediately okay. not that. No, you you can use it intel intelligently. But I think overall, I do agree with Zach that it's not used intelligently. And so, um, with well, a lot with what you guys are saying is like, film is already an illusion. I mean, just mm. you're you're buying into that these people are not people that they are. I mean, that's, you know, like, and then there's films that try to play with that idea. Then, on top of that, like, people add, like, titles like 1941, 1971. Mm. And it's for clarity. And it's like, how clear could you be about something as mysterious as the camera? In the end, like, at that point when you're taking a bunch of photographs and yeah. lining them up within a second, well, 24 times, like, is that even to to that? I'd say, what's the end point? Like, what's this this thing that you're you're dealing with with the, with the camera is this this thing that's so mm -hmm. irredefinable? Is that like what your body of work tries to like illustrate, like through like searching and and you know posing questions? Like, like what is the what is the end point to that kind of conversation? To what is the camera and how does it deal with like? Is it? It seems like to me it would just keep you circling in, in thoughts. And you just kind of like, like there's like a meaning that you're trying to find. Like for me, I try like to like why you film something. Is that what you're asking? It, it's kind of like, like it seems like you're you're really interested. Specifically, Zach is really interested in the camera and how how it has this already. It has this layer to reality, mm -hmm. right? Um, it, sorry, it, it it's one one thing I'm interested in is is reality, right? And I, I like that. Um, as you, you were in my class and we talked, I was talking about reality. But what, like, what is a film when it exists? Does it make it exist because I'm watching it? Does it, is, then, and then that kind of goes back to what you're saying, Nick, about um, you make films for yourself, mm -hmm. right? So for a film to exist, does that mean that someone has to watch it? Uh, well, I think we, 
going back to the whole why we make films, yeah. we all inherently kind of make them for ourselves regardless if we think we are or not. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's in your soul, it's what you're yeah. doing, and they it do exist without an audience, because mm -hmm. there's, there's thousands of films that have never been seen before, never, that may never be seen, and but they still technically exist. And so it's, it's, it's interesting and it's challenging as well how yeah. to, almost how to start with that, how to, prog how to progress with that. If you even want to hyperanalyze your own being of a filmmaker and why you do that. And so so what, I'm, what I'm saying about Zach is Pedro Costa, he, he made horse money. But the, the kind of, to me, the end goal of that film was to, to, to find the authenticity in the story and to also tell the story about what was real. He, he, I, I watched multiple interviews with him, mm -hmm. of him talking, and I've, like, the hour-long ones, I've watched him, I, I, he kind of talks in a way where I forgot really easily, I'm, I'm, I'm impressed with your quotations of him. But what I'm saying is, kind, if you can watch that movie, you can be like, man, like, it, it's got broad things, like, he's talking about humanity generally, but then also about, like, how this man who was maybe 10 years older than Costa, seven years, some, yeah. he, he said yeah, they're yeah. pretty similar, yeah. he's yeah. in his, like, 70s. Yeah. Experience is completely different, you know, reality to him. Yeah, that does exist. Yeah, that he tries to tap into in his own style. Yeah. and and that's that's where the contemplating of Costa is funneled into that that can help me or help society mm -hmm. or help yeah. himself well, or help Ventura. Well, it, 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 yeah, I think there's something very interesting about that because, as you said, right, Ventura and Costa had like very different sort of experiences in their lives, and one thing I think the inter interview I think you're referencing is. Costa says, "Oh, uh, in the day of the revolution in '74, uh, I was I was I was uh, launching rocks and celebrating with my friends, and Ventura was hiding like a friend. And we and we've talked a lot about why we make films, and mm. we make films for ourselves, and yeah. we make films based on ourselves, and we make, and we make films to prove that we exist, and we make films to prove this, and we make films to prove mm -hmm. that. And I think a lesson that we can get out of Costa's work and in his relationship with Ventura, mm -hmm. and something that he talks about, is that." Cinema can't be like that. We almost talk about it in like too selfish a way. Mm -hmm. You know, like it's, it's, it can't just be ourselves, 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 we're pointing the camera at ourselves. It can, but I think there is something which is, you know, you talked about Jacob Rees and a lot of the other guys that he loves, like uh, Walker Evans and James Agee, and those guys, poets and photographers and writers, a lot of their artistic pursuits wasn't them going, you know, James Agee going, all right, let me like write about myself, let me write about, well, maybe he did do that, but I'll bring up an example that Costa talks mm -hmm. about all the time. It's not just, okay, let me think about myself, let yeah. me, let me uh, do, you know, write this about myself, let me understand myself. It was, let me try to understand someone else, right? So I think there is something that's very also important about that, that cinema can't be, or art in general cannot be too selfish. It, it, it can't just be like you. You can't just point a camera at you. You have to point... You have to point it at something else. So it's almost like a mm -hmm. cinema and just art in general. Like a, it's about understanding and it's about trying to understand some complexity about someone else yeah. that maybe you know mm -hmm. makes you understand yourself better. But I think it can't. It has to be that. It it can't just be forever you. It has to be, you know, Costa understanding what the other perspective in '74 was, or uh, mm -hmm. Jacob Rees, you know, filming or or taking photos of of like the tenants in New York City. Right. It, it's that. It's about that attempt of trying to... It's his to, pursuit to understand. That's but it's someone else. It's not just you. And I think that's something we've talked about too much here. Is it's his pursuit to understand someone else. Yeah. It, okay. We've talked too much, I think, about almost given the wrong idea, I feel, of mm -hmm. why we make films. At least me, because 
Hmm. I do try to make a, it's very personal, but at the same time, it can't be that. It has to be, for it to really be something that's hmm. much bigger, it has to be you in relation to someone else, or you trying to get at someone else. Otherwise, it becomes too selfish. It can be too personal. And you have to be careful to get out of your own head. And, and, what's and, so... get, and try to get into someone else's head, because then it, hmm. it becomes, it, it, it's like the universe. Then, then it's the universe. If not, it can become something that's too selfish. And you want to go for the universe, you know? Because you can't, yeah, like Costa making, Costa, Costa is not like a, he's not like Ventura, he's not a Cape Verdean immigrant, right? He doesn't know the neighborhood, but yeah. I mean, now he does deeply, but it's still that idea of, of him trying to understand something that's not himself, you know? Mm -hmm. what's, what's the negative to being selfish in film? What if you're somebody, what if it's Ventura who makes a film about himself. Well, the thing is, that's what Costa says. It's just says. hard to figure Costa that says, out. Yeah, I mean, it's it is. Try. Costa says that horse money and just his films are, it's like the in-between between, between right. what he searches for in Ventura and what Ventura gives him. Mm -hmm. And, and that, the camera's between them. And the camera's between them. So, so, so there's the beauty, right? Mm -hmm. It's these two people yeah. together. It's the sort of, it's the, like, uh, I don't know, if, is osmosis a word? Yeah, the yes. Okay, <laughs> it's, the, it's the osmosis between the back of the camera yeah. and the front of the that's camera. Really interesting. Right. And that's what and that's what you need in cinema is the back and the front mm -hmm. to both be working mm -hmm. at the same time, you know. And both and you were talking about the concentration, right? In Bellatar, in the long shot, it, there needs to be that work and that concentration behind and in front for you to access something that's beautiful or universal or true or authentic or yeah. or or whatever mm. it, it, that's where it, it, it's born out of it's it's these it's it's from the difference you know yeah i mean the camera is certainly a filter for yeah. reality to a large yeah. degree and i like the thing costa talks about with uh he doesn't he just said it before that there's there's always somebody and in every shot there's always he says he doesn't like to do landscapes. Yeah. Right, which yeah. is really, which is really wild to like take that into consideration. And we watched a brighter summer day yesterday, um, and that's a similar, that's a similar thing that you realize it's, oh, there's always people in it. I mean, even though it's not, even though it's very long winded, and I don't know if I would say a brighter summer day is slow cinema or not. I, 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 I don't think it would. Yeah, I, I have a tough time because it's pretty engrossing. You know that maybe that's the trick of it is that if you're if you're engrossed you're or people time, are, kind of yeah, it's, yeah, if it seems like it goes by fast, but I don't know, these definitions get really hard to put into words, but mm -hmm. um, I guess it's just hard to believe that people could like operate that slowly, or there could be a long period in which something happens, and within Costa's films, after you see them, you kind of think, what is he like doing? Like, especially when, especially, and this is in Labdia's cinema as well, especially when you have shots and then people enter them, and he tells the, the actors, he, and how Lav Diaz does it, is he shows them the frame and he says, this is the frame, so mm -hmm. you're, I want you to count to like 10 beats yeah. and then come in. And they go, well, why do I have to count to 10 beats? And he goes, just do it, it'll look better. And so it's within the whole flow of this constant like movement, right, of a person essentially continually walking through eight hours of space. And so it's more space. It's more like it takes you as long as it does to get through that, through the frame. And as Sakharov, we talked about Russian Ark, he, he's claimed that that film was attempting to see if space and time were linked. And I think he was just like, yeah, they're linked. So it was his conclusion. <laughs> and it's really, it's really wild that 
especially when you're taking into account like a person, like what, what that even is. And we, like the, psych, the psychology is being met or people trying to understand one another because it, it's something like, and you can, you can talk about this in the context of this conversation. Like I don't feel like it's been that long for me because I've been right there and we've, you know, we've talked about the, 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 um, yeah. <laughs> the spirit of conversation and how that in itself is this is alive and it's a tangible thing to follow and mm -hmm. and get at so why we're able to watch pieces of slow cinema is that we know they're not just it's not just like paint drying or something but even again <laughs> it's 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 getting to a place that's tangible with this camera that you wouldn't really believe and to convince someone is not like an easy process it's not well okay you're gonna believe that these people are actually themselves in horse money. I think it's it's more intrinsic than that. Like you you're you're deeply aware that they can't possibly have been told to do how they're doing it and like be how they are and they're not really acting and they're also talking about themselves. So it is like a tangible spirit and it's like the attempt to get to the to the spirit that makes it go by fast. Like for instance, if I watch horse money, it goes by faster and faster the more I see it. But then the more I see it, it kinda of goes back and forth. Like I feel like I'm lost within my expectation how fast I want to get through it and you can also bring up for slow cinema and just any piece of cinema that you if you want to go somewhere else it'll feel longer if you want to be there and you want to figure it out each moment and you're actually trying to get to that moment and maybe you are in that moment mm -hmm. you're carried right along and that's kind of hard to believe especially for a long film when you get through it but you still get through it it's to know that you're not going to get like attacked by like a like a lion or something like there's no there's no danger to watching an eight-hour film. Like you don't. It's not like you don't have the time because that's also, of course, a myth of this culture as we're getting into it that we can sit in these theaters but not for that long. And it's, but why? You know, well, we can. It's, uh, just, the, it's just some people just don't want to. Sometimes. Well, there, there's something crazy about that because I remember in 2010, in Lisbon, uh, Raul Ruiz's masterpiece, Mysteries of Lisbon, which is a uh, four and a half hour film showed in theaters. Yeah, that showed, Mysteries of Lisbon showed in theaters. Mm -hmm. And people saw that, so I don't know, I think we're not giving people was, that much credit. I was think, it a busier showing too? A lot of people went oh, to that? 2010 did, I don't remember. But, oh. <laughs> uh, it was eight years ago. Oh, wow. But it, it showed, and it can, that, you know, that proves in itself that it can be shown. I remember my history teacher, back in the day, telling our class, you know what, I saw this film, Mysteries of Lisbon, and, um, you know, at the time, I, 2010, I was like 12, I, I, I didn't want, I, no, I didn't like even think old. about, didn't even think about watching Mysteries of Lisbon, but my history professor, she told our class, like, um, you know, I was really impressed, because we went to the theater, and everybody just sat there, and everybody just saw it, you know, for five hours, and, and I'm like, and I, I'll, I'll, and I never forgot that, I'm like, wow, you know, they just, and this kind of what I was talking about earlier about St. Tango, is if you put people in, a theater, they'll they'll watch it, you know. So they can. It's not that we can't. Is that the theaters aren't showing it for all these reasons? But if they if they show it, then we can see it, whether it's ten hours long or an hour and a half. Yeah, I think a big problem is with the theaters specifically, not necessarily the audiences, because you know, and obviously some people just won't do it. They'll go, oh, I don't watch movies over an hour and a half. But I think that if we if theaters will trust audiences. Mm -hmm. People will show up to see them. It's going back to access. It's, you know, is screening an eight-hour movie profitable? But I think people will go out and see it if they care about cinema. You know, not everyone will see it. Of course, you know, you say people will come out and see it, but 
<clears throat> I can't imagine just anyone going, oh, let's you know go go to the movies. Would just pick Mysteries of Lisbon. Well, with that, Zach, you kind of you said that you emailed. Love Diaz or something, and he said like, "We well, have a rich fan base here in Chicago, and yeah, and regardless of if you're going further than that's true or not, there is still a broader and larger amount of viewings for these films now because of the accessibility, and I think it can only get larger from that. But then again, there's also the number is still going to get; it's not going to get larger or smaller. It's, it's still going to just continue being niche for audiences because the telephone and looking at your phone during a movie people on their couch watching Netflix watching some the 100th 1000th episode of the office or something they're kind of they're used to more of just kind of the process of just sitting down and letting it happen as opposed to sitting down watching analyzing and doing that some people come home from a hard day of work and don't want to like analyze yeah. a large film it's uh, that's a large portion of why, like the, maybe, maybe not. Of course, not the whole working class audience, but there's a reason why. The vast majority of people aren't kind of going into that because they yeah. they have other priorities, other one, other things to do. And if you're into this, if you're into cinema, if you're obsessed with cinema, you love movies, then yeah, go for it. But so, so one thing I find interesting about what you're saying, Taylor, is um, for me. Contemplative cinema, as a definition or a different term for slow cinema, is perfect because what I like about cinema is how it it gives me kind of a, almost a literature kind of way to conceive a, a story or a, an idea. And one thing I like is what I can bring to it. But there's some people who hate that idea, who maybe maybe if you want to break that idea down, they, they don't like sitting in a theater and like it's them in a movie kind of. It's not them in entertainment. It's just them in the screen. And when they watch those movies, they hate them. And I'm, I'm, I'm wondering why, and I, I think it's kind of like they're scared to be alone with their thoughts. Like maybe they're scared to have to venture down this hole or to, to build a story with a film or to give themselves to the film, like you guys say. Like giving yourself to a film, that's such a big thing with movies. Like you, you can't watch a movie and then be like, it's not a horror movie. Can't watch it. Can't watch it. It's not, it's not uh, an hour and a half. Can't watch it. Three hours? You, you expect me to sit here for three hours. I can't do that. And then it makes it easier for them to give into a film that's like an hour and a half that's an action movie because they're more willing. And one interesting um, tidbit is uh, Neville made a film called uh, Awake in Paris, right? Yeah. And I, I would consider that slow cinema. Uh, these guys know more about me. I don't know. Have you seen it? Did you consider it slow cinema? And the, the Neville's directing to yeah. the film? I guess you can, but I didn't really see it as much because it was a bit more... The shot composition, it wasn't like slow walking yeah. down. There, there was consistency yeah. to it, but... Well, I showed that to my friend, just a regular, regular guy, who's, who's kind of into um, okay. the art scene, and he loved it. Wow. <laughs> he absolutely loved it. Wow, and, and the thing is, but he, he didn't like that he had to give the, um, the credit to the filmmaker. And he, 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 based on just his one viewing of the film, he didn't like that... Um, basically, what he enjoyed about the film is how it made him think inside himself internally. He liked how it made him think of his past, his past relationships, because that's kind of what you talked yeah. about the film. And he didn't like that because he thought it was like, oh, all this stuff that I like about this movie, it goes to this person who made an open-ended film that you know mm -hmm. 
But is that a bad thing? Like, I'm, I'm posing the question to you guys because personally, for me, I like a film to do that for me. I like a film to. I mean, it makes me feel like I'm participating in, in the active. It's the same thing as like watching a conversation opposed to then being able to talk in it and get that that sensation of talking. Hmm. So what exactly did he so, want? So basically what he, he said is that he didn't like the idea of film as a platform where you think and you make your enjoyment off of like seeing images. Oh, a girl, that reminds me of my daughter. Wow, I remember those summer days yeah. of my daughter <laughs> growing, yeah. like, when she grew up. It, he doesn't like that. He likes it when a film is telling you how, like, enjoy this moment. It's intense. Mm. Enjoy this, uh, or feel empathy for this person. It's sad. Feel for them. Feel the human mm -hmm. in you. Well, let's think we all have a lot of thoughts on that. Yeah, well, you know, that's the thing about slow cinema that's so tough for some people, I guess, that they, you know, you said uh, people want to go to the movie, hour and a half, get like an action movie. They want a lot of people, they want an escape. They want something to take their mind off of things. They want to just be consumed by Liam Neeson jumping over a fence with, from 20 different angles. But yeah, slow cinema can be tough for a lot of people because you're sitting there for so long and it makes you, you know, it forces you to look inward, you know, not, if maybe not even the story or whatever is being presented. Uh, but you know, you become hyper aware of yourself. You yeah. are sitting for so long, you become aware of your body. You become aware of the twitching you're doing, the moving around. It's, so cinema is very haptic in that sense. It's haptic cinema. You're, it's causing a physical reaction. My butt's falling asleep. I gotta move around. I wanna stand up, but I can't because everyone's around me and I'm in the movies. Mm -hmm. it's, it forces you to be very conscious of yourself, mm -hmm. which is you know, the opposite of what a lot of people want from a, a, a trip to the movie theater. So it's a very different experience and it's, it's kind of punishing in that sense, you know? And I think it's Lab Diaz who's talked about it, who says, what's it, he wants to make you uncomfortable? Yeah, I want you to urinate. Like, I want you to have to urinate. Yeah, I want, I want, he wants you to feel your body. And he doesn't even build intermissions yeah. into these eight-hour films. I'm pretty sure the festival just goes, okay, we gotta give people breaks, where do you think they should be? And he goes, all right, the two and a half hour mark, the two and a half hour mark. It's, uh, you know, Saint and Tango, for instance, is in chapters and then there's an intermission, but Lav Diaz, it's like straight through. Like there's no, you take breaks. Like when we saw, well, we didn't actually have a break for the woman who left, but uh, uh, it was four hours. so it was four hours sitting in a chair and not getting up. Um, but this certainly relates to Bing Wong too. That's a guy we haven't brought up. Yeah, he's a. Um, I, I was just thinking about that. He's he's a. Yeah, I just mentioned him. Yeah, he he's a documentary filmmaker, uh, and you could say much more strictly he's documentary than Costa because it's like. Yeah, I would say so. Most of the tracks, I'd say that's a pretty right hard. Not that it's anything less than Costa. He's also unbelievable. Costa said that Bing Wong is the best filmmaker in the world, or like the most courageous filmmaker in the world. And what Bing Wong has said about. Uh, kind of what you're bringing up has to do with the the separation of a script and then what you see and this is a problem I've had just in film school and like how people perceive movies is that you think that and I think that's the assumption that people that there's a written script and then there's a goal and you write I want people to feel this way and that's kind of like the Steven Spielberg school um, that you make people feel in different moments and you're like you, the you're your orchestra is the audience, and you're making their emotions go where they need to be, but it's not you're like... You're manipulating the audience. Right. Manipulation is, of course, another huge uh, term to, to figure out in this context, because as a, as a person making slow cinema, it's, it is much more pushing someone into that internal place, like we're uh, discussing. But as Bing Wong puts it, 
there's a problem, an inherent problem in, and I've used the term cinematographic, and he, he talks about that too, that you have to find a character when he shoots like, you know, people like working class people, he has to find it through the cinematography. He doesn't write, I'm planning on shooting it like this. He goes and he physically does it. So yeah. that part of it, that part of cinema that's really hard for people to grapple with is that. Is that. <laughs> to get out. So for Bing Wong, because he doesn't have a script, and I mean, even documentary filmmakers try to have like a plan, which is, I think, kind of irresponsible to think that you want to organize people in their lives. Bing Wong is, he's the, pretty much the, de the definition of fly on the wall filmmaker. Like, he's going to go and be with people for incredible amounts of time. Like, the film Till Madness Do Us Part is like a four hour film in a mental asylum. And it's crazy that some of the shots he gets, because they're always like naked or going to sleep or like pissing in cups. And it's a grim. It's a grim film and you really think to yourself, how is he like doing that? Like how is he physically able to like be in that gross space for as long as he is? Mm. But that's the performative side of it. And that's the performative side of of cinema. That it's especially with the camera and especially He's performing. Well, the performance is to wield the camera. So if you if you feel the camera at all, or even if it's stagnant, and that's where it gets even more complicated with like acoustic, because it's always static camera, is to understand that there's a person that's psychologically connected to the characters. But with Bing Wong, it's an even better example of how that's not planning out. He's not trying to make you feel a certain way about the asylum. He's shooting it, and then he edits what he shoots. So everything that you figure out, and everything that he figures out, even more specifically, um, and this is how I feel my films uh, come about also, is you kind of figure out what they're about after you're, you shoot them, in, especially in that manner, because you're following, like we're talking about with the spirit or the performance, you're trying to follow where you want to put the camera, not as like an engineer, not as you're trying to like plan out what this moment would be, but out of the fascination of capturing the moment. And you can't have this, this expectation like this needs to be this huge scene of a father and a mother like breaking up or something, because it might happen. And there are those kind of scenes in Bing Wong films, mm -hmm. but they're not anywhere near cliche because that's how people are too, to some extent. And so he does capture stuff like that, but if there are people sleeping, they're sleeping, you know? If people are gonna not talk to you, that's like the film, it's the fact that they're not talking to you. He made a film called uh, Man With No Name, and he's just following this guy around who's isolated, just farming by himself, and he like doesn't speak the entire movie. It's like an hour and a half, and he's just alone, and, and Bing Wong is deeply interested in that type of, in that type of internal, and that type of privacy, and how people can get along like that. So if you represent that through following people that don't really have like we're saying with the archetype, you can try and say that the man with no name is a hero, but then there's like reality and you're not quite there because it's still a film, but then you're, you're getting close to it because it's, it's tough for him to even put into words like what type of journey is he putting out there, right? So there's still something heroic in the fact that he, he shoots it and it's in the performance. It's in the fact that Bing Wong is there physically and tracking these people. That is the spectacular, as we were talking about earlier, that... And that has its, you know, that has its rise and fall. Very natural rises and falls for the audience. See, you don't need to tell the audience that it exists for them to say, "Oh, this is like a very large thing," or yeah. you're accessing reality, or you're trying to. Like that's just very clearly, very directly, what's being approached. I have, I have a question. Um, so, with with you guys, like for me, I find it enjoyable when I find a different. Um, aspect of filmmaking that I didn't know about that, that
that helps me make the films that I want to make. Like I will watch video essays and get extreme pleasure from like learning new information that will help me. With, with you, like what's your just what's your journey to find this information? Like what is it? Is it like I I look up stuff? Like you guys say you watch a lot of interviews. You guys watch these films that I've never heard of. Like what is that journey? How much? How enjoyable is it? Is it actually because to me? Or to even someone who says watched an hour and a half action movie, like they can't imagine a life like that. Is it is it because you enjoy um, making movies that you enjoy this, or is it like just even the the thought provoking of all all of it is what's enjoyable? I mean, it's it's certainly the journey to hear a friend tell you a film they like and then to watch that film, and that's like the beginning. That's like when you're in elementary school, or like your parent makes you watch a film, and then when you begin. Following that, you do end up like you are now, for instance. You're now hearing about these filmmakers that we are. It's not that you're late or didn't know it. It's that this is when you hear about them, you know? So you always get there if you're going about the journey. Um, and so that's certainly an, an immense pleasure to me, at least, to hear people say what they like or describe what they... To describe what they see as vital in a film and to figure that out is like that's why I don't know it's worth living just finding meaning you know finding meaning is very you can follow it you know mm -hmm. so being in this world where you find out about this if you you enjoy learning you enjoy yeah it's great to I mean I, I agree with mostly everything that Zach said but to mm -hmm. put to, to add to that um, it's also great to see, like, yeah, as a filmmaker, I think is a huge motivation for me to, like, see what all these filmmakers are thinking, and uh, that's, like, how I find out about a lot of these films is by hearing my, the filmmakers that I like talk about these films, mm -hmm. and sort of, then you can sort of see where those films come from, and you can sort of get a sense of the history of cinema, which, as I said before, is essential if you want to be a filmmaker, so, if you are a filmmaker, so, yeah, and it's also just great to see, like, different like, you know, Costa will have, like, a completely different interview than, like, Zulowski or uh, Lav Diaz or... And then, you know, we can have, like, very special conversations about the difference between how Lav Diaz and Pedro Costa perceive the world in their mm -hmm. different interviews, you know? And that's, and that's something that's just, like, incredibly, like, enriching to sort of contrast and compare all these different mindsets with all these films that sometimes are similar, different mindsets, or mm -hmm. similar mindsets with different, different films. They so kind of just really interesting conversations like this. Yeah, it'll, yeah, you know, like this, and that's how you also become a filmmaker is by having these conversations, you know? Yeah. And, and you can't just go, oh, I liked it, or I didn't, I mean, you can, but if, it's like if you have the ambition to make these films and, you know, you're in this world, like you wanna, it's a, an essential part of cinephilia. What, what I'm saying is an essential part of cinephilia. Cinephilia. Yeah, is having this yeah. conversation. Yeah. You know, it's talk. You can't. It's too easy to just watch them. And you can. And I've done that. And there's a lot of movies I love. I've never talked about. But it go, it takes you so much further mm -hmm. to as I was talking about earlier, like taking a camera and understanding someone with a camera, taking someone and understanding you know a film with someone. And mm -hmm. and it's incredibly beautiful. You know, it really is incredibly beautiful. Yeah. You, you know. Yeah. Um, I mean, how do I come up on it? Like, not how do you come up on it. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm more interested in like, for me, one is a, a movie is being a filmmaker is a motivation to find and search these movies out. But also on top of that, I do enjoy watching movies. Do you, do you find these films that, that some people might say are unenjoyable, like enjoyable, like in like you guys explained your thoughts on already. How do you feel about it? 
Yeah, I mean, I think if you're going to be a filmmaker, it's vital to watch films. Uh, you have to understand what's going on in the world around you, uh, the artistic environment. I mean, but also, I'm interested, you know, I'm going to be going into education, film education, so it's vital for me to understand the world around me so I can be the most well-informed I can possibly be, mm -hmm. because I plan to teach people. I have to be as informed as possible. Mm -hmm. But I think that, you know, finding films, especially, you know, ones that people can't see, don't see, are important because we're understanding, you know, we're seeing those far out reaches of cinema and, you know, understanding the limit, what people perceive as the limitations of them. And by watching these very obscure ones, these hard to see ones, these very long ones like slow cinema, if we're going to watch slow cinema films, we don't, un we don't un only understand, you know, the cinematic form like any sort of IMDb top 250 film. We're understanding what people want to watch, what people don't want to watch, and we're understanding ourselves by watching yeah. films. It, film is everything, and so I think you have to see everything. Yeah. There's a transform transformative nature of choosing what you want and what you don't want to kind of indulge yourself with cinema. It's uh, kind of like the prodigal son or prodigal son. Yeah. It, yeah. There's when I said earlier, but like the the working class guy doesn't want to go see a four hour movie. And we also touched on they also they flat out hate the movie as opposed to oh, I didn't really understand what was going on at all. There's like I hated it. It sucked. They're in their mind. They are correct. They know what's going on and they hate it. They hate it for being mm -hmm. different or just being something outwardly. Yeah. And I, I think it's close-minded just to say like, oh, you don't understand that, so you don't get it. I think there's, I think there's. It's also close-minded to say they hate it and sucks and stupid because they didn't. They didn't really want to watch it either. You need to want to watch some things in order to get even more out of it. If you if you hate watch something, hate watch. You can get you can get something out of that. Still. You, can, you can watch the film, but when you want to watch the film, when you when you like you said when you search when you've been searching for this thing for so long, like oh it's finally right in front of me. I finally get to watch this. It's a, an amazing experience. And you you gain so much out of what you want to watch and when you want to watch it, and you can you can you can find your tastes through that if you want to consider the films you like as tastes. It could it, you don't need to have that though. It's it, it's kind of that's kind of BS at the same time too. You can just you can like everything if you want to know cinema. You don't have to have something specific that you like. You can just kind of like, like cinema exactly. You can like cinema. your taste is cinema exactly. Yeah. You can. You can you can enjoy Big Mama's House too. You can enjoy um, Horse well, Money. Well, not to well. the same extent. Oh, you think you think Big Mama's <laughs> House Two is not as good? <laughs> well, we're not getting any flights now. <laughs> but but yeah, it's there's something there's something really really interesting about when you want to watch it and why you want to watch it. I don't it. even know what Big Mama's Are we House Two is. Are we we're starting a plug Big Mama's House instead of? I don't uh, even know what that movie is. You guys have talked about it like for a while. You guys should, you guys should show it sometime. Alright, anyway. Yeah, so if you guys wanna um, yo, yo, do yo. your outros, starting with Zach. <laughs> Alright. Follow me on uh, on Instagram. My name is Zach Crossway. Yo, yo, yo. Watch uh, Tragedy After Birth on YouTube. <laughs> Alright, Neville. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, I guess if you guys wanna check out my movies, oh, yeah. I guess if you guys wanna check out Awaken Paris, just do that on YouTube. It's, it's, it's up. Yeah, uh, alright, thanks for having me on as well, and uh, if you're, if anyone around the Columbia College, <laughs> Chicago area should uh, come to the screenings done by the Art House Film Club on 
uh, Tuesdays and Thursdays at 7 p.m., room 504 and 1104 South Wabash. You can and find the Facebook group. Yeah, there's a Facebook group. And uh, check out the Experimental Film Society Facebook page, Run Through Columbia, that I'm the vice president of. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah. All right. Follow me on Instagram. It's at Crossweight. Uh, yo, yo, yo. You can also follow, <laughs> you can also follow the, the Cult Cinema Club Instagram, where we got all sorts of goofy pictures posted and fun, colorful events and bullshit and blah, blah, blah. All right. Thank you so much for listening. Thank if you, you have listened to this point, that's uh, very good on you. I hope you enjoyed some of the information. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna and to this in point. the words of uh, to end this, in the words of Zach Crossway, with some adjustments. So, if you are unable to go through the entire podcast, let me know what your thoughts on it are, as I'd love to continue understanding it through the words viewers could give it. Thank you. Okay.